Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. The Jell-O Program, coming to you from the stage of the Ritz Theater in New York City, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens a program with I Hear Bluebirds. played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the latest and greatest of Western heroes. A rugged, two-fisted cowboy who rides like Roy Rogers, hoots like Hoot Gibson, hops like Hopalong Cassidy, and skips like Allison Skipworth, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Yippee again, folks. This is Two-Gun Benny talking. Bang, bang. And, Don, I gather from your introduction that you've seen Buck Benny rides again at the Paramount this week. Tell me, how did you like it? Well, Jack, I'm not saying this just because I'm a friend of yours, but the picture was swell and you were great in it. Really? But I thought you told me it was going to be in Technicolor. We tried Technicolor, but it didn't work out. You see, Don, due to a peculiar pigment in my skin, I photographed plaid. <laughs> In fact, you couldn't tell where my suit left off and my face began. <laughs> tell me, Don, how did the picture go over? Did the audience seem to enjoy it? Well, Jack, you mean to tell me that you haven't seen your own picture yet? Well, I've been meaning to, Don, but it slipped my mind. I must drop in there one of these days. Why, Jack Benny, what are you talking about? Mary, I'm speaking to Don. The idea of telling him a big fib like that. What do you mean, Mary? Well... Never mind. Jack got a job as an usher at the Paramount so he could see his picture six times a day. <laughs> Now, wait a minute, Mary. That wasn't me at all. That was my cousin, Boo-Boo. <laughs> we look exactly alike in a uniform. Well, all I know is I said, hello, Jack, to cousin Boo-Boo, and you turned plaid. <laughs> Mary, that wasn't me ushering. How many times do I have to tell you that it wasn't me? Oh, Jack. Dubs, please. I mean, what is it, Don? <laughs> See, Mary, you got me all confused. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to go back to where we were before you came in. Say, Don, did you see the reviews on the picture? They were swell, weren't they? Yes, they were, Jack, especially the one in Weekly Variety. Oh, I missed that. What did it say? It said, uh, Buck Bunny is very good entertainment. Well. And that Mark Sandridge, the director, had again exercised his hypnotic influence over you. Well, that's very... Hypnotic influence? What do they mean by that? Well, I suppose it means that you're just a fair actor, but that Mr. Sandridge hypnotized you into being a great one. Hypnotized me? Well, that's a lot of baloney. I wasn't hypnotized at all. Then why were you laying in that department store window for a week? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hope I was decent. <laughs> Wait till I see Mark Sandridge. Take it easy, Trilby. Well, if you think I'm going to stand for that... Oh, hello, Phil. Hiya, Jackson. What are you burned up about? I just found out something. Were you ever hypnotized, Phil? What do you mean? 
You know, where everything goes blank and you don't know where you are. Yeah. Boy, was I hypnotized last night. <laughs> Phil, there's a difference between hypnotized and paralyzed. <laughs> so you were out celebrating, eh? Why not? Did you see the swell notices I got on our picture? What notices? Here's one right here. Get a load of this in yesterday's paper. Hmm. It says, Phil Harris definitely scores both as a comedian and a dramatic actor. Well. Let's have more of this sterling artist in pictures. <laughs> Let's see that. Hey, wait a minute. That's not a movie review. That's in the letters to the editor column. Well, what about it? The public writes them, don't they? Public nothing. This letter is signed F. Remley. And Frank Remley is your guitar player. <laughs> of all the nerve. Take it easy, Jackson. Just because Frankie works for me don't mean he ain't sincere. <laughs> Look, Phil, that's silly. All your friends know that you two are always together. Why didn't he sign the letter anonymous? That's it, Frankie. That's the word we were trying to think of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brother. You know, Phil, I hate to ask a sterling artist like you to play a band number right now, but we're about due for one, so get going. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo returns to the world of Jack Benny. There will now be a slight pause while the audience yells out, Again? Yes, the world of Jack's strange saga in cinema continues with an ent entry that gives the picture-goer a direct glimpse into the world of his radio show in 1940 and the imagination that can follow. For only one picture will give you the rootin' tootin' good time that will make your saddle spin and your trail along the lone prairie less sullen as we unveil Mark Sandrich's 1940 cowpoke comedy, Buck Benny Rides Again. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. This is it, Rochester. Now take that box of candy and this note up to Miss Joan Cameron, apartment E, immediately. But boss, you ain't even acquainted with the young lady. Well, of course I'm not acquainted with her. That's why I'm sending her this gift. I've offended her and I want to apologize. A little box of fudge. That ain't no apology. It's a big box and besides, it's very good candy. It ought to be. I made it. You made it. Listen, Rochester, who put the nuts in? You did. That's more like it. Now, remember, if everything goes okay, you signal from that window and I'll come right up. Now, hurry up. Okay. I don't know how I do it. Butler, chauffeur, ballot, cook, now I'm a carrier pigeon. Yes? Package a note for Miss Joan Cameron. I'm sorry, she isn't in right now. When do you... Would you care to leave it? Maybe I better come in and wait. I don't know whether... It's a very important package from Mr. Benny. Mr. Jack Benny. Mr. Jack Benny? Do you work for him? With a capital W. Well, uh, won't you come in, Mr. Uh... Van Jones is the name. Rochester Van Jones. <laughs> mighty cozy. Mighty, mighty cozy. Say, 
Haven't I met you somewhere before? London, Paris, Harlem? No, it couldn't have been me. We just got in from the West a few weeks ago. And you haven't seen the sights yet? No, I stay in most every night. Honey, get ready for some fresh air. How about you and me doing the town tonight? Why, Mr. Van Jones, I hardly know you. Well, that problem's being settled right now. Uh, what do you say, Miss... Uh, Templeton, Josephine Templeton. Sure glad I delivered this package in person, Josephine. I am too, Rochester. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Coming off of the sleeper success of Man About Town, Mark Sandrich sought to double down his success with transplanting Jack's persona to the big screen with a film that did away with the guise of Jack being anybody other than Jack. What results is a film that, despite any shortcomings, does indeed carry over the concepts of the Benny radio program into a cinematic experience that ends up resulting in a wild ride of laughs that also carries with it arguably profound momentum forward in the world. It's also a film that would call into question the very notion of intermediary cooperation and would set a tone for debates still discussed to this very day. For all that can be said, though, about this experience, whether good or bad, Jack and his regular cast of characters give the world of Benny fandom a treat of a picture that still stands today as a gem close to the hearts of those who care for it. But just what is Buck Benny Rides again? And how is it important for Jack and for cinema at large? Well, we can't figure this out alone. With us on the dusty trail is an old cow hand from the Ballyhoo Grand who has already brought his thoughts to the listeners with discussions of Stanley Kramer and Hitchcock. He is also a writer, director, and Jack of all cinematic trades whose film When She Showed Up can be seen on Amazon and Vindio. Please welcome to the program Brandon Rose, or as he's known today, Buck Brandon. <laughs> oh man <laughs> did you like that did you that like was, that <laughs> that's quite the intro man yes yeah. yeah. oh you're, you're setting the audience up for disappointment because yeah. i'm just gonna i'm just gonna crash and burn kinda, no you're no you're not kind of like jack benny in the second half of the film trying you, you, are, you are the there are many <laughs> <laughs> there are many catalysts for <laughs> this huge jack benny discussion that has unfurled over the past less than six months i want to say Mm -hmm. um and it really does start with us talking about it's a mad 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 world which because there's so many comedy stars in that film the fact that we had as much time to talk about jack and eddie rochester anderson in it is kind Mm -hmm. of remarkable because it'd be easy to talk about virtually everybody else in greater detail and we do but those two did get some attention and part of it is because of my fascination with jack and my obsession with him but uh obsession is but, right but you but you ki- you kicked off the Eddie Rochester Anderson discussion and I and my, I must say you you kicked it off in a glorious fashion you set the tone for how to discuss his career and legacy it's something that I've had to carry on into my episode with Laura Leibowitz on Man About Town which is kind of the first entry in this Mark Sandrich trilogy mm-hmm. uh, and then it extended off into the you can't film Jack panel for the Jack Benny convention that I did with uh, Dr. Kathy Fuller Seeley and Leonard Malton. So, uh, you 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 are the you are the catalyst that kicks this off, sir. So you got to give yourself more props than what you're giving yourself right now. <laughs> oh, I'm I, hey, you know, I'm giving myself props. I'm just like, hey, you know, we're gonna go down this rabbit hole of Jack Benny, and then I'm gonna be like, <laughs> you know what, Zach? 
you are the historian on this, so you're going to have to take the reins. If we're going to keep using horse, you know, references here. You're, you're, um, just sit, you're, just sit, you're just sitting there, just l- looking at the computer going like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it's uh-huh. going to be a test to see how quick I can hop on Google and do some research um, <laughs> <laughs> while, we, you, while I, I, you're talking I, about it. I've done that at certain points when a guest brings up something and I'm like, and I'm like, I didn't look into that. And then I look it up and I'm like, okay, I can, I, I can like at least gauge the situation, which I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't claim to be an expert on every single film we talk about. I have to do a lot of like basic level research to get the cro- to get across the production history. But like, eventually I want to do deeper dives into each film after having time to like more thoroughly research them. Um, like the bad and the beautiful or summertime or films where I'm just like, yeah, we barely scratched the surface on this. I want to dive more into this. Um, and also kind of like what this film today, there's so many personalities in these films of the past that, uh, it would be a disservice not to discuss each and every one of them. Um, but we're here to talk about Jack Benny, uh, Uh, and Buck Benny rides again. There we go. Um, so Brandon, uh, this is a question that we already talked about your golden age Hollywood experience. Um, yes. Now, in the course of us talking on virtually a weekly basis, I want to say, like it's pretty close to that because mm-hmm. of the work yeah. we do as writers. Um, we At some point, the discussion trended to you finally sitting down to watch this movie on your own merit and accord. Um, and uh, you've known me for uh, for many years now, so you've known about my obsession with Jack, but I do want to ask you, like, what is your knowledge of Jack prior to meeting my my annoying ass? <laughs> Wait, all right. So you're asking me what my knowledge was before like, you, were you, before were you, you. A, yeah, were you aware of him prior to knowing me? <laughs> yeah, I heard about his radio show, and that's pretty much it. I never really listened to it. Um, mm-hmm. Really, nothing. I just knew of him. And knew that he was big in radio and impactful in in terms of radio, um, but never listened to the show, <laughs> never. <laughs> and then I met you, and that's literally all I heard about was Jack Benny. <laughs> like and the that's po- apologies all in advance. You talk about that's everything. I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, I felt like at first you kept referring to him just as Jack. And Jack and Jack and Jack, like like this guy was just like hanging out at your house, like that's how familiar you were with him. <laughs> and then you like, I was like Jack Benny, and it's like, oh, you're just down the rabbit hole on this guy. <laughs> it's and true, then, uh, yeah. And then I learned more about Jack Benny, you know, because of you, and you know, and then I ended up watching Buck Benny, and I was like, wow, this is a, uh, it's actually insanely underrated. Yeah, and it and what's interesting is is that out of any way you could have been exposed to Jack. Cause as you said, you haven't heard any of the radio shows per se. Um, and I would imagine that unless maybe apart from a clip in uh, a compilation, you haven't seen any of the TV shows, um, which are, which are available online. Um, oh, none of them. I've never, yeah. no. there's a bunch, there's a bunch available. Um, and then there's some that you should be acquiring through a physical copy, like the shout factory, uh, Jack Benny uh, lost episodes um, collection that Laura Leibowitz helped put together. Um, and I, I don't, I, I mean, obviously like I, I wouldn't blame anybody for not knowing who Jack was, but what's interesting about your experience is technically just because of me beating down the door, <laughs> your first exposure to Jack technically apart from my 
spouting out information is one of his movies, which I got to be honest, it's a, it's a point of view that I've never encountered before. Like, I don't think I the only exception would be people who have seen to be or not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not watching it for Jack. They're watching it for Lubitsch um, more often than not or Lombard. Um, I don't even think Benny crosses into their minds. But once they leave that movie, they come across with the impression of Jack, and then they either go down the rabbit hole or go, he's a fine performer, moving on. Um, <laughs> but you, I don't think you've even seen To Be or Not To Be, have you? No, no. No. Okay, so yeah, literally, this is the first literally. Jack Benny film that I've seen is Buck wow. Benny Rides Again. Okay, now you do need to watch To Be or Not To Be just to kind of tip the scale in the other direction to see, like, oh, this is what he could do. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, And also, it's a good Lubitsch comedy that inspired the Mel Brooks remake um, and, uh, and, frankly, inspired Mel Brooks, period. Yeah. But... It, but the so so basically what you're saying to me is is that you you don't even have the full scale of it you are literally getting a lot of your jack information just off of buck benny in terms of like how you receive it as an audience member yeah I, really i'm watching it cold like i have mm-hmm. no like prior like you know i don't know reference for what how what jack does actually a little bit like just because of you but not really like i've never watched a f- listen to a full episode or watched a full episode of anything that he's done from start to finish and Mm -hmm. buck benny's the first thing (laughs) and i'm like this movie like stands on its own and works yeah it's it's interesting how well it does work considering a lot of things we'll be discussing but why don't we start why don't we start first with jack's own words Mm -hmm. um this is from jack's um unpublished manuscript that was then published uh, by his daughter Joan, um, called Sunday Nights at Seven: The Jack Benny Story. Um, he this is a paragraph from his uh, from his recollections on his film productions. Um, I made pictures for MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Warner's. I made movies with bro- radio broadcasting as the theme, like the big broadcast in 1937. I made such B pictures as Man About Town, The Meanest Man in the World, Love Thy Neighbor, Artists and Models Abroad. Um, and Buck Benny Rides Again. Um, I made such A pictures as Charlie's Aunt, George Washington Slept Here, To Be or Not To Be. I also made The Horn Blows at Midnight. This was neither an A picture or a B picture. There is no known alphabetical letter under which you can classify The Horn Blows at Midnight. <laughs> um, <laughs> now that's a little tease for the eventuality of discussing The Horn Blows at Midnight, which I have a planned episode for it. Um, although I want to try to get more people in the room on it because the movie's not just about Jack. The movie's about the insanity of that movie. It's a, it's a fun-ass movie, and it's a great time to watch it, but it is insane uh, if you're looking at it objectively. The whole movie is kind of off its rocker. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jack considers Buck Benny Rides Again a B-picture, along with the, major- with the remainder of the Mark Sandrich trilogy. Now, the, the whole impetus of the Mark Sandrich trilogy, which is Man About Town, Buck Benny Rides Again, and Love Thy Neighbor stems off of Mark Sandrich being brought in by Paramount to fix Jack's film career. And what he does with Man About Town is transplant a lot of elements of the Jack Benny radio character to the point of even putting in Eddie Rochester Anderson and Phil Harris in the movie uh, that ultimately uh, give 
give the audience goers uh, something to latch on to for Jack's radio persona that trans that transplants into film success. Man About Town was a sleeper hit. Uh, it did make money, and it proved to be the gateway for Jack uh, on film, and it would lead to some very interesting uh, uh, results in regards to Jack's film career and uh, how it would then evolve past that point. Um, but I wanna, I, I'm want i going to be referring to a couple of different books, and one of them is Dr. Kathy Fuller Seeley's book, uh, who will be a who is now going to be a future guest on the show because I already recorded her episode talking about Sullivan's travels in depression era cinema, uh, so that that will be a fun discussion. I got her <laughs> on a non Jack tangent, which was fun actually to, to kind of just dis- discuss a different topic. Um, but she also provided a lot of information to me prior to my panel on you can't film Jack. Um, but I will say that um, the. Uh, the way that you go into Buck Benny Rides again, first of all, it is a continuation of this trilogy started uh, of this of this fixing of Jack's film career, starting with Man About Town. Sandridge is signed to a long long term contract by a very grateful Paramount Studios and promoted to producer director. Uh, Sandridge proceeded to push the integration of film and radio even further in his second film, which is Buck Benny Rides Again, um, and. From Kathy's book, Sandridge hires Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne to draft the dialogue script. Based on the expansion of the series Buck Benny Rides Again, the Western skits that had been performed on the radio show in 1936 and 1937. Now, this is something that I, sh- I, I apologize in advance, Brandon, for not sending you some of these episodes in order to give you some context, but... Buck Benny Rides Again was primarily starting in the 1936-1937 season. These start out as just a series of consistent sketches where Jack plays the hero Buck Benny. Uh, and the, the basic plots of these things is that he's always after, he's always after Cactus Face Elmer, <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a, devi- a devious villain in this world. But a more uh, in almost every sketch... He is meeting with his uh, sweetheart Daisy, uh, and sweetheart Daisy, played by Mary Livingston, who was Mary Livingston on the show. Um, the the uh, and she was Jack Benny's wife in real life, Mary Benny, um, and uh, she she could never marry Buck because she was always taking care of her pappy, uh, played by Phil Harris, um, uh, 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 old drunk Carson, and uh, and then. Eventually, these sketches bring in Andy Devine, um, who Andy Devine, we've already talked about because he is the gentleman uh, <laughs> looking over the uh, um, the reports of where the different uh, uh, greedy people are in um, yes. It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. And Andy Devine, I, I want to talk, I want to bring him up first as, in the long slew of people we're going to be bringing up because he is... His his connection with Benny is interesting given his actual legacy beyond that. Like I think if people know Andy Devine, they know him from the westerns he was in. Mm-hmm. He was a western staple, not the least of which being in films like Stagecoach. Yeah. Um and The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance and How the West Was Won. Oh man. If you have never heard Andy Devine's voice, 
it's kind of a it's kind of a treat because some people find it annoying. <laughs> I find it endearing. Uh, I talked about this a previous guest on the show, Smokey, uh, does a show called All the Best Lines, and he he expressed a, he expressed his. He, he was not a fan. And I totally understand. Here's the thing. I totally understand how you could not be a fan of Andy Devine. It is it is a personality that you yeah. either click with or you don't. Now, most children of our age would know Andy Devine, not by name, but by character, because he is Friar Tuck in the Disney version of Robin Hood. Wow. Um, and uh, and given the fact that he's also alongside Phil Harris, it's also kind of like a mini Benny reunion in that respect, because obviously Phil Harris plays Little John. Um, but Andy Devine, coming out of Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, growing up in uh, growing up in Kingman, Arizona, his uh, his his voice was the result of an accident. Oh. <laughs> uh, the, but he. <laughs> He gets into uh, Hollywood and starts working uh, his in notable roles like Roy Rogers' sidekick in ten movies, the sidekick character of Cookie. He has a role in Romeo and Juliet in 1936, which I've never <laughs> seen before, and now I need to see if this is available. And he's Danny in A Star Is Born from 1937, and he ended up becoming a long-term contract player in Universal. Uh, uh, and he was paired with Richard Arland for a series of fast-paced B pictures that mixed action and comedy. So he was kind of like an action comedy star for a little bit too. Not not, not too dissimilar from how we've you know seen Kevin Hart do it or uh, other other uh, uh, yeah. actors. The Rush Hour series. The Rush Hour series, yes, absolutely. Lethal Jackie Weapon. Chan and Chris Tucker, yeah. So there's Lethal Weapon, yes. So there's Forty there's Hours. Like a, Forty. Well, is that a series? And there's two because of them. There is two. But which one are you watching before the other one? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, d- we don't oh. need to go down the road of another 48 hours. That's for a modern day podcast. Oh, um, man. But anyway, though, in, so his role in the Buck Benny series is interesting because he ends up extending beyond these sketches and just becomes a member of the cast that hangs out at, with Jack constantly. And he always talks about how his Ma and Pa are doing. Uh, and uh, passing off, amongst other things, clearly moonshine to Jack as as gifts, uh, offering to hold uh, to hold Jack's horse in his in his barn for a small fee, uh, providing a space in his barn for him to practice a boxing match that he's going to ensue in with Fred Allen. Uh, so, th- so he ends up becoming kind of a staple for it, but he ends up leaving more or less in the uh, uh, early early to mid forties. Uh, he would come back. Uh, in later radio shows specifically written around his talents. Um, And uh, so these Buck Benny sketches were firmly ingrained in there. And around the time that these sketches were occurring, this is also when the Fred Allen feud kicked off. Fred Allen is in this movie. We'll talk a little bit more about him and we do the plot. But so there's a lot of elements of the radio show that get put into this movie that were formed as far back as 36. The newer additions end up being the inclusion of Dennis Day into this plot. Dennis Day was not around for the Buck Benny sketches, but in the promotions for this film, there are there's a radio show specifically centered around the fact that Dennis Day never heard a Buck Benny sketch and never got to participate in it, so they put on Buck Benny rides again for him. They would end up doing this sketch one more time 
to my knowledge, in the 50s with Sarah Churchill, daughter of Winston Churchill, uh, playing playing a school marm. Because <laughs> uh, Sarah Churchill was an actress. Um, and uh, so, so she, it wasn't like necessarily banking off of her father's success. She was an actress in wow. her own right. Um, albeit she had a very troubled history, but we're not here to talk about Sarah Churchill today. Very true. Um, very yeah. true. But um, so anyway, this sketch, these sketches are initially written by Bill Maher and Med Beloyne. So these are brought in, uh, Morrow and Beloyne are brought in to then expand off of a story from Arthur Stringer and Z Myers. Um, and, Mark Sand- Mark Sandrich brings in Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne to bring in these bring in these uh, bring in the bring in the talent that they brought into Man About Town, which mm-hmm. basically Morrow and Boulogne are instrumental in reshaping the Maury Riskin script, along with Sandrich's own contributions. And Morrow and Boulogne being more firmly uh in in invested in this film shows compared to if I were to show you Man About Town compared to this, there's mm-hmm. a stark difference. Uh, even though Man About Town contains elements of the Jack persona that are uh, and elements of the Jack and Rochester uh, dynamic that are positive, it's still muddled with a lot of of its time tropes that don't work. Here, it's a vastly different overhaul, um, and bringing into this film they expand beyond just jack phil and eddie rochester anderson now you have dennis day andy divine and you have in vocal cameos uh mary livingston fred allen and as a cameo both vocally and at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. don don wilson um <laughs> who uh, don wilson is <laughs> i mean you would not you would not know who Don Wilson is unless you knew who Jack was. Like that's like they are so inextricably linked to each other that to assume that you would have heard of him outside of this would have been ridiculous. He is he is born in Lincoln, Nebraska and ends up uh being uh primarily uh centered in Colorado. He plays football for the University of Colorado in the 20s. And for he was a very large man, and his excellent he was an excellent sportsman and an excellent amateur golfer who ended up teaming up with fellow NBC announcer Bud Stevens to win many matches in Southern California. He begins his radio career as a singer at the Denver station KFEL in 1923, and then by 1929 he starts working at KFI Los Angeles. Um, uh, well, wasn't he on Batman? Don Wilson? I don't believe so. No. Yeah, the series Batman. I thought he was in that. The original, like in the was it like in the sixties? Yeah. Well, yeah, but no, he's not. He's not in it. I don't believe. No. Who do you think he played? <laughs> um, I don't know. I just remember. Uh, I'm going to his IMDb now because I've yeah. never heard of this. <laughs> Don, I don't. I've seen the series. I do not remember Don Wilson being on it. That's why I'm like, oh shit! You are right. That's right. That's right. He's yeah, uncredited we, as Walter Klondike. He was like, yeah, he was like a quick little thing in there. Yeah, Dishonor the Penguin. That's right. Shit. Oh, my God. I like, I, oh, my God. And it's one of I've those got, random things that like I remember. Like I remember it like because when I watched Buck Benny, I was like, I know I've seen this guy. And like, my dad <laughs> loves the original Batman series. I'm like, I know this guy. 
I've wow. seen I've seen this man. <laughs> I am glad that you re- I'm glad that you brought this up because I would have not remembered that. I've seen I saw the series when I was in high school because I got a bootleg one before they finally released it officially. Oh, bootleg! And yeah, yeah, I got it. <laughs> I, I got it at a comic con, which will um, at which I'm not going. I don't remember the name of the vendor, and that's probably for the best. That's but, good. That's uh, good. But anyway, yeah, I saw it on a bootleg. I do not remember him playing playing a character and he's uncredited so maybe mm-hmm. i that i you'd think i would remember that shit but i guess i don't recall the batman tv series as best as i'd like to well you can't remember is, everything man no but it sucks for me because we are going to be talking about batman uh the 66 movie with brad haig on a future episode oh um, man so but yes don wilson is 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 uh his primary association is with jack um, he's, he does a lot of announcing for, um, uh, uh, for other shows and his career really begins as a singer, but he ends up going as a broadcaster covering the opening of the 1932 summer Olympics. And then huh. he appears in two Broadway shows. Uh, and then along the series of announcers that Jack would hire, Don Wilson is the last one he hires for any job and he stays with him up until Jack's death. Um, and the, their, their banter back and forth stemmed from the fact that Don was a rather rotund obese figure, which the, the, the jokes, the, he was a big are, man. They are fat shaming jokes on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. but they are not, I will say that it, they do not feel like absolutely hurtful because they write it in such a way that Don is very much in on the gag. So yeah, so um, you're saying at the time, yeah, like the they time, were all in on it. But you yeah. know, nowadays listen, yeah, doesn't look listen, very good. Yeah, yeah, no. If you listen to it today, you would probably cringe a little bit. Like that's the thing with Jack Show. It is immensely immensely re-listenable, but there are several elements of it that oh. if you don't have the context for it or if you can't separate yourself from it it might be a little uh it might be a little abrasive well, dude there's um, a lot of moments like that in buck benny rides again where yeah it's like, we're gonna talk about them you're like oh yeah there's <laughs> uh there's 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 some issues abound in buck benny rides again to say the least where context um, is important and like yeah doesn't make it acceptable but it's like understand the time here yeah well and it, it, it is accounting for the fact that um to understand this film is similar to man about town where you have to understand the context around it mm-hmm. and how for all the issues that these movies have there is so much being done where you're just like you got away with that yeah in a progressive manner like it Absolutely. is very very it, it, it's kind of astounding how uh the film does play this out but uh, so Mark Sandrich starts incorporating further elements from the Benny show into here. Um, and again, as we said, he brings in Don Wilson for that cameo. He starts bringing in the radio concept, uh, the idea of Jack as the broadcaster, which Jack had played a broadcaster before in obviously Broadway Melody of 1936. In Broadway Melody of 1936, it's more of a gossip columnist kind of thing. But so... He's basically taking other elements that have already been done and just saying, like, he's basically telling Jack, like, look, you don't really need to lift a finger. You're going to be doing your radio persona on air. And Jack, uh, it it did seem from if you read Milt Josephsberg's book, it seems that he didn't really have respect for these projects 
but he did acknowledge that there was uh there it would they were walks in the park and the money was good mm-hmm. but as we learned from the Leonard Malton and Kathy Fuller Seeley panel at the convention Jack and Mark Sandrich were very friendly with each other in real life he Jack and Mary Benny were very good friends with Mark Sandrich and his wife um and so it seems to me that Jack it would seem that he saw these as more than an ample opportunity to at least establish some success in film, whereas he wasn't really receiving it prior. So this is kind of like the surefire way to ensure him being successful. And in many ways, I feel like the Mark Sandrich trilogy and its success are the stepping stones that can get him into films beyond this mold because Mm -hmm. it's certainly... It's certainly seen by the time he leaves Paramount and goes to Warner Brothers and, or to 20th Century Fox for Charlie's Aunt. Um, so, but there's also another uh, couple of elements in here. One is there's some cameos by other people uh, from the Jack Show that are uh, uh, very, very incidental. Not the least of which is a certain polar bear. Um, but we're gonna we'll talk about him in a second. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, but before we jump into the plot, which we are gonna do here very soon, we have to talk about Eddie Andrew Eddie, Eddie Rochester Anderson again, um, who has become one of my favorite subjects to dissect and discuss. He's always been fascinating to me, um, and he's certainly one of the finest parts of any Jack Benny experience. Uh, but his history is very, very. Um, uh, uh, not spoken of for the most part. Now we did do a lot of uh, background information on him for the Buck Benny uh, for man about town. So I won't go further into that and like rehash everything that the listeners have already heard. What I will say is, is that at this time uh, he is receiving arguably more attention and uh, praise at this point for his collaborations with Jack on film. I have something here from Kathy's book that I wanted to read. Um, oh, here we go. One thing you should know about Buck Benny Rides Again is because is that Paramount Paramount put up a huge promotional campaign for Buck Benny Rides Again in 1940. Um, the film the film was filmed in late 39, early 40, um, and it focused on nearly, basically equally on Anderson as much as Benny. So the two of them were the driving points of selling this film. Rochester's role in film had become so popular that it extended beyond. So the rate between the radio show and the tele and the films, Rochester was a huge hit. Um, and I will read directly from Kathy's book for a second. When the Jello radio show resumed broadcasting in October of 1939, after the 39 Ender season, when they were at the premiere of Man About Town, by the way, uh, the program's narrative struggled to deal with Rochester's on-air, on-screen, and public fame, given that his radio character was supposed to be a private servant. Paramount, meanwhile, rushed Benny and the radio cast into a new film to capitalize on their success titled Buck Benny Rides Again, um, and then... I will go a little further to it. In a December 1939 episode, Jack and Mary discussed the film, go- the filming going on at Paramount, and Jack mentioned that Phil and Andy Devine were appearing in the picture. Did you leave anyone out? Mary asked, and and in an opportunity to heckle him, Jack, <laughs> oh yeah, Rochester is in the film. I forgot. And Mary says, "You'll remember when it comes out." <laughs> <laughs> so 
there is uh, there is a slew of attention put towards Rochester. And when I can dig and I'll dig up the clip and people will be able to hear that clip inserted right here. Well, anyway, uh, besides Phil, there's Ellen Drew, Andy Devine. And oh, yes, uh, Rochester's in the picture. I forgot. You'll remember when it comes out. <laughs> Listen, Mary, I'm the hero. That's good enough for me. But so, yeah, there is a lot of attention around Rochester's fame at this point. And rightfully um, so, man. I mean, he's like, I mean, the duo of him and Jack and Buck Benny, I mean, they're like, they're a good tandem. Like, they're, they're a great team. Yeah. And... The promotion on Paramount's end to build up Rochester as much as Jack is interesting because this is something from Kathy's book that I think is proves to be the most intriguing. And it's also the difference between films that are considered classics that have not aged well compared to a film like this, which it doesn't age well, but it's it's more intriguing. So. Uh, this is from Kathy's book. While this huge publicity buildup of Eddie Anderson was occurring, Hattie McDaniel had much more contested reception surrounding the December 1939 premiere of Gone with the Wind. Jill Watts and Matthew Bernstein have documented the refusal of white Atlanta municipal authorities to allow McDaniel to publicly participate in the world premiere of David O. Selznick's film in that deep, deeply segregated southern city. Even though McDaniel was nominated for and won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for a role, Southern whites did not want to celebrate her performance. Southern blacks rejected the film entirely for its depiction of racial attitudes, slavery, and the Confederacy. Even though Anderson and McDaniel both portrayed servants in these films, because Anderson Anderson is in Gone with the Wind as well, um, the popular understanding of of their performances and public reactions to their stardom was impacted by a myriad of factors highlighting the differences between historical melodrama, contemporary musical comedy, and the relationships of Jack and Rochester versus those of Mammy and Scarlet. While it Mm -hmm. is fascinating that Anderson could gain so much more public appreciation for his star performance, his success came at the price of seeming to submerge in, in the role of what both racist whites and black intelligents would label as a public clown. Um, So differently than what MGM had done in Atlanta, in April 1940, Paramount's publicity department mounted twin premieres of Buck Benny Rides again. Now, I'm going to stop there because we're going to go back to that by the end of the episode. But Kathy's, Kathy's pointing to the fact that it's, it's the dilemma of discussing Eddie Anderson's, uh, importance in entertainment because he is playing a negative stereotype. Absolutely. And as we discussed on Laura's show, uh, Laura's episode and on the panels, the reasons why it is important to look at Rochester's performance in, I don't want to say a different lens, but like in a unique lens is that it is the only instance that you can really find where an actor of his caliber uh, is able to break boundaries because of the way the role was written. And Mm -hmm. this has not just to do with, with and it has nothing to do with it has, well, it has partly, it has to do with how the writers write Rochester in the show, but it also stems from the fact that Jack Benny's character is 
a, a jerk. He is a he is a lovable sab, sad sap. Well, he's a um, diva. He's a diva. Yes, and, he he's a lot and Rochester, of Rochester. And Rochester gives him gives him shit through the entire movie. Exactly, <laughs> like, which that, is that, so much the, fun to watch. And that is the key to the Rochester Benny relationship: is that Rochester is able to insult Jack, something that no other performer is able to do at this time without raising the ire of of Southern right white racists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the the bottom line is is that a lot of imagery in these movies that Sandwich Dudge are only possible because of that relationship. Now, it it does yep. seem so narrow that it seems a shame, but the bottom line is is that they were able to circumvent things that Southern censors would have flipped their shit over, Look, but that character was so popular that I, nobody could, basically nobody could touch it for the most part. I, I, um, I really do think they pushed it as far as they could with trying to get Jack's film career going. I think they pushed the envelope as far as they could at that time. Like, yeah. is it perfect nowadays? No, not even close. But Rochester's able to, he gives him shit the entire movie, Has is able to sort of like try to like con his way into a little like subplot with Josephine and he's trying to get with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and we and let, let's talk about Josephine for exe- for a second because her name is actually Teresa Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legendary Teresa Harris cuz she is not just yep. in this movie guys, she is no. in a lot of films. She is. Um, she's born in New- on New Year's Eve in 1906 in Houston, Texas to Isaiah and Mabel Harris, um, f- who were former sharecroppers from Louisiana. He relocated to Southern California when she was 11. She graduates from Jefferson High School. She studies at the UCLA Conservatory of Music and Zoliner's Conservatory of Music. And then she joins the Lafayette Players, an African-American musical theater troupe. Um, And she makes her debut in the 1929 film Thunderbolt, singing the song, Daddy, Won't You Please Come Home? And she enters the 30s playing mostly with no-credit maids to characters acted by Ginger Rogers, Betty Davis, Sylvia Sidney, Francis D., Myrna Loy, Jean Harlow, Thelma Todd, Kay Francis, and Barbara Stanwyck. Um, and she gets a featured role as the friend of star Jean Harlow in MGM's Hold Your Man in 1932. Uh, and she appeared as Chico in the pre-code production of Babyface starring Barbara Stanwyck. So these are other instances where she's playing these roles. That same year, she starred in a, a substantial role opposite Ginger Rogers in Professional Sweetheart. As Rogers is made, it says here that Harris's character subs for Rogers's character as singer on the radio. Despite the fact that Harris's character was a major point for the story's plot development, she went uncredited for the role. That is Ugh. ridiculous. That is Ugh. It's super it's gross. Now, now she it's also gross. plays a she does play a maid in one of my favorite movies of all time, Horse Feathers, uh, which is the fourth Marx Brothers movie and my favorite of the Marx Brothers films. She's only in it for a second, um, but um, she actually her her only interaction with a Marx brother is with Har- uh, Zeppo Marx. So <laughs> she didn't even get a scene with. <laughs> oh, man. she didn't even get a scene with the three awesome ones. She got one with Zeppo. <laughs> uh, again, that's and we, gross. And, and to be fair, I'm a pro Zeppo guy, but let's be frank: Zeppo was of no use to the group at this point. <laughs> yeah. They didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, Zeppo um, was the RC Cola of the of the brothers. But here's the thing: I, here's the thing, and we'll we'll save this discussion for a Marx Brothers episode down the line. 
when Zeppo leaves the group, those movies become difficult to uh, appreciate down the line because those five movies where he's in there, there's magic going on. Yeah. Once you get to MGM with A Night at the Opera, it's still a good film, but it lacks something. And then by the Day at the Races, everything else after that just starts <laughs> plummeting. Because Day at the off. Races, D- Day at the Races is a disappointment, and then everything else that follows is well. Hopefully, it's least uh, less disappointing than the next one. And ended uh. up and Night of the, Night in Casablanca ends up being like a return to form for them. Um, but anyway, Harris though, um, she uh appears in the race film Bargain with Bullets opposite Ralph Cooper for Million Dollar Pictures. She did promotion for the film and spoke about the frustration over the difficulty of African-American actors faced in the film industry, stating that, I have never had the chance to rise above the role uh, rise above the role of a maid in Hollywood movies. My color was against me any way you looked at it. The fact that I was not hot stamped me either as uppity or relegated me to the eternal role of stooge or servant. My ambition is to be an actress. Hollywood has no parts for me. Um, and then she praises Ralph Cooper uh, for starting a production company that produced films starring African-American actors. She says, we have nothing to lose in the development of all colored motion picture companies. The competition will make Hollywood perk up and produce better films with our people in a variety of roles. She's very outspoken. And Harris doesn't just stop at this point. So he uh, uh, she also she has a small but very important role in uh, in out of the past as Kathy Moffat's ex-maid Eunice Leonard. Uh, So. She's in some very prime films of the era. She's also she she's a sarcastic waitress in Cat People. She has roles in I Walked with a Zombie, Phantom Lady, and Strange Illusion. She ends up being on Alfred Hitchcock Present. Yeah, I worked with Teresa. She's a lovely girl. Oh my um, god, man! She's super lovely human being. Super. The list cool. of roles that you rattled off for her, where it was like maid or servant, or like it's ah, oh, it's just terrible. Because one of one of her she last, was like, can I tell you though? She oh, she also goes uncredited for her final film role, The Gift of. But Love. she was really, really good, and there's a strong chance that like she won't be like remembered as like one of like a, a great actress. And it's it's bold. I I trying to use a uh, PG language, but it's it's just it's shameful. <laughs> it is shame. It is shameful. Now I I actually think she's a wonderful performer. I think um, so too. That's why it's shameful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, yeah. I'm so, and I, I'm so pissed. I would say, and I would say that you know, uh, the to my mind, like the the bigger discussion that will come up down the line is going to be figures like Eddie Rochester Anderson, Teresa Harris, uh, Paul Robeson, uh, Bill Robinson, who actually plays it a, a part in today's story, um, and Louis Armstrong, and other figures of this era, mm-hmm. Lena Horne, especially. Uh, and and their experience with it, but also filmmakers on the independent circuit like Oscar Michaud, who are making primarily African American uh, casted films uh, on their own merit and dime for theater circuits that catered to African Americans and not to and were not really shown beyond those limits. But mm-hmm. thankfully, Kino Lorber does have a, uh, a a box set called Pioneers of African American Cinema that rectifies that. Um, but so we've got Teresa Harris in this film. And I think on that note, 
there's one there's one or two more cast members we'll talk about as the plot goes along but we were going to jump into this plot right now brandon all right uh so we're going to go off the we're going to i'll put off the credit list directed buck many rides again directed by mark sandrich produced by mark sandrich and joseph l mankowitz the brother of herman mankowitz who you all remember from the movie hank mank a movie that is a great watch you should still watch it because it is a masterfully made movie and it tells a good story apart from the the citizen kane stuff in mank is irrelevant like it's it's almost like it doesn't mean it doesn't mean much compared to the actual plot of the movie being about the gubernatorial elections of it's a well-made movie with some inaccuracies yep which biopics can do that sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just based on a true story it's not the true story uh but it is written by bill morrow and ed beloin adapted from a story by arthur stringer and zion z myers uh Starring Jack Benny, Ellen Drew, Andy Devine, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, Virginia Dale, Lillian Cornell, Kay Lineker, Ward Bond, Teresa Harris, and Rochester. Whoa. Well, you don't have to shout it, Don. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with with the sterling cast of ra- with the with the radio voices of Mary Livingston, yours truly, Don Wilson, and Fred Allen. Fred Allen. So long, folks. <laughs> So if you're wondering why I'm speaking like this, the beginning of this movie yep. is quite unique, Brandon. Quite unique. It is. It's a it's a great opening. I love it. It's it's badass. I fucking love it. It starts with Don Wilson going, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring to you that solemn sphinx of the prairie, that men among men where men are men, Jack Benny and Buck Benny rides again. And uh it then cuts to a picture of <laughs> to an image of of Don Wilson and Jack standing next to each other and Jack is in a nice dress suit with a cowboy hat on. Yep. Don Wilson reads through the credits uh and then by the time he uh uh, and and Jack is also it's was established right from the get-go he's doing the Oh Don, please. So he's already a st- in going into the diva, like the 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 vanity mode that Jack is known for. Oh, and then dude, the moment, yeah. and the the moment Fred Allen is mentioned, he leaves the screen. Why is that? Well, we'll <laughs> we'll get to that. But the first opening shot of the actual movie that isn't uh, in a wraparound form, <laughs> we are in New York City, and it is hot as shit, Brandon. <laughs> yes, it is. It's steaming. It's so, it's yeah, steaming out there. Do, do you know what? It is so hot. It is so sweltering, as the new, as the paper says, that folks need to entertain themselves by frying an egg on the side of the street. <laughs> now, the good old days. <laughs> right off the bat, Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne are bringing in their cartoonish style that you can actually hear in the radio show. You can hear the cartoonishness of their gags. Mm-hmm. permeate here they are literally visualizing it and here seeing an egg frying on the side of the street is a nice gag to get you into the mode of this movie like it's an example of like theoretically anything's gonna happen guys and to be honest it does most anything does happen in this movie um but morrow and Boulogne are very very interesting figures within the scope of uh jack's career so they are brought on after uh, Jack uh, dissipates from his uh, who, from his legendary writer Harry Kahn um, over the fact that Harry Kahn felt that he wasn't getting proper credit uh, and proper appreciation for his scripts, and he left Benny high and dry. 
And so Bill Morrow and Ed Beloyne eventually become the writers for this film. They start launching their writing career uh, during the 1936-1937 season and remain there for seven years. Morrow... Morrow is interesting because he plays a role on Jack's show, Mr. Billingsley, a.k.a. my spirit animal, uh, <laughs> who is a hungover boarder who, uh, of Jack's who frequently makes non sequitur remarks. So kind of like me, Brandon, I say nonsense, and I'm a, uh, but, I, but unlike Mr. Billingsley, I don't drink anymore. So, Sounds uh, like my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so you spend he, a Saturday night just listen to someone ramble? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, at this point, I want to point out that I meant Eddie Boulogne plays Mr. Billingsley and is the first person who I am uh, talking about in regards to the team of Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne. Uh, A thousand apologies uh, to the Boulogne estate if they exist. I'm not sure if they do. Anyway, sorry for the interruption. Back to the program. (laughs) Exactly. And... He ended up uh, working. He ended up co-writing films like All in a Night's Work, G.I. Blues, The Sad Sack, My Favorite Spy, and Road to Rio. He ended up working a lot with Bob Hope, and he was nominated for a WG uh, a WGA award for best written musical for G.I. Blues. Um, in 1943, he joins the army and he leaves Jack's uh, show. Uh, the result being that because Morrow and Boulogne were already on the out the door at this point to move on. And uh, they ended up getting the legendary team of Tackerberry, Josephsburg, Perrin, and Balzer uh, on board, who would end up being the key group for the remainder of Jack's career. Uh, Bill Morrow is a very, very interesting character in that as well. Is that he? Uh, uh, he kind of he was a uh, he 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 wrote for films like Tales of Manhattan. He also ended up working a lot with Bing Crosby, ended up work, uh, writing for Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time, which then ended up becoming Chesterfield Show, General Electric, The Bing Crosby Show. Basically, he worked with Bing up into 1962, and he scripted Damn. The Road to Bali and wrote for the comedy, Colgate Comedy Hour and The Frank Sinatra Show. So you could honestly say that uh, Bill Morrow was like my, my, my crony, you know? And he would just help me. <laughs> oh, my God. Would, the the voice and uh, <laughs> But anyway, it is so hot in New York City. Uh, and uh, right now, uh, Eddie, uh, inside Jack's penthouse apartment in New York, uh, Jack Benny is uh, uh, hanging around his house, Rochester is hard at work at taking care of a polar bear in a bathtub. <laughs> now, Which... if the audience is wondering, why is there a polar bear in a bathtub in this Western comedy? Well, first of all, as we've established, this movie does everything. <laughs> Pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, were you confused when seeing that there was a polar bear in the bathtub, Brandon? <laughs> No, after, uh, you know, the intro and how wacky that was, I was like, look, like, let's be honest. And the name is Buck Benny Rides Again. It's like, all right, let's be honest here. It's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Like, let's let's see what we can see. What we're going to cook up in this. <laughs> so the second I saw Rochester with with the bear, I'm like. All right, this is this is going to be one kind of movie. <laughs> yeah, Eddie Rochester Anderson taking care of Carmichael the Bear actually has quite a history, Brandon. Carmichael the Bear 
is an extension off of the Jack Benny radio show around this time. He, he, in the show's history, he was a gift given to Jack by an admiring fan from Alaska. And, uh, uh, and the gag that Carmichael is most known for, first of all, the character of Carmichael was played by primarily Mel Blanc, uh, and, uh, the voice, cause he would just do the, <laughs> like the growl, uh, but there is an episode. There's a series of episodes in the '40s where Jack is entertaining and uh, collaborating with the Quiz Kids. And the Quiz Kids was a radio show where uh, very smart kids would be submitted questions by the listening audience, and they would compete for uh, prizes and such. Jack was scheduled to come on to the show uh, as a competing kid, and the gag was. The gag was that obviously he's not going to answer a damn thing, um, and consequently they also had the uh, the quiz kids themselves on his show to do a scripted uh, recreation of the quiz kids show versus the Jello the quiz kids versus the Jello kids because Jack's sponsor <laughs> was Jello. Uh, Richard Williams, who we talked to at the Jack Benny convention, uh, had some stories to say about that too. So like he, so this gag was established, but in the background. Jack gets a call from Rochester saying that like uh, the gas, uh, the the representative from the gas company came <laughs> to read the gas meter down in the basement where Carmichael is kept. And then in, in Rochester's words, all of a sudden it sounded like feeding time at the zoo. <laughs> and the question on Eddie Rochester's Anderson's mind in the that series of events is what happened to the gas man? He doesn't have an answer. He doesn't dare to look down there, Brandon. All we know is is that gas man never came back up the stairs. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, like a good lawyer, you don't ask questions that you don't know the answers to. <laughs> and that's Jack's position on the show. <laughs> he, you know what his phrase is? Forget about the gas man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why? yeah, I mean, they'll, readdress, they'll address it later. <laughs> Eternally optimistic to the fact that the gas man probably is still alive. Like he probably escaped out a back window or something. And it's like, yeah, bleeding. And, and Eddie Rochester Anderson's like, no, 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 Jack. Yeah, Mister Benny, you are you are going to jail for a for assisted murder here. Like, yeah, Rochester's like, look, man, I found a tooth. Like, <laughs> there's more of him around here somewhere. Like. <laughs> Either Carmichael ate most of them, and there's got to be a foot or a boot or something. We're going to jail, and yeah, you need to take you, care of this. <laughs> you think you have a funny bone, Mr. Benny. I found an actual funny bone on the yeah. ground of the basement. <laughs> it's like, oh, I didn't think a human femur was that big in real life. No, uh, but but now I have. And, and the fact that I'm still working for you marvels both me and the listening audience to this day. <laughs> I got to tell you, though, Carmichael seems to be a fan of Rochester, so that's good. Well, on the show, actually, they have their own little tete-a-tetes with each other because Jack uh, Jack asks the world of Rochester, which is part of the reason why the dynamic works is because Jack is such an obnoxious boss and such a demanding boss that we sympathize with Eddie Rochester Anderson in the process to the point of actually trying to have Rochester actually remove one of Carmichael's teeth in one of the radio shows. Um, that is uh, that is a uh, interesting series of events. But anyway, he is giving him an ice bath, and he gives him a towel, and he says, "Here's a towel, and remember, the hand belongs to Daddy." Uh, <laughs> and um, and we go into the living room, and Jack is being pushed by Phil Harris, 
uh, his band later on the show uh, to go out to Nevada because Phil Harris has his own agenda when it comes to sure. going to Nevada because he is uh, hooking up with a divorcee. His uh, side piece? The, yeah, by the name of Brenda Tracy, played by <laughs> Kay Lineker, who is a staple in, uh, Buck, uh, in Man About Town as well. Um, and uh, Phil Harris... We've talked a little bit about him uh, on the Man About Town episode, but here is a film. This is the film that gives him a little bit more time to shine. Um, born in Nash, born in Linton, Indiana, growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, he identified himself as a Southerner, and uh, but he is not. A, he was not a hateful person by any account. Uh, it, it was more like the uh, the culture around like Southern cooking and Southern hospitality is what was more his thing. He had yeah. a Hallmark song called "That's What I Like About the South." He had a trace of a Southern accent, and in later years, he made uh, jokes about it and his heritage on the air. So he was, for any like semblance of pride he had, it also came with a self awareness. Um, mm-hmm. He was actually good friends with folk with other with other musicians because he starts off uh, as a drummer for a circus band. His father was a tent band leader, and that's how he got his first job. He had the he grew up he was born under the name Wanga, hmm. uh, which is said to be derived from a Cherokee word meaning messenger of fleet, or perhaps more accurately, fast men- messenger. Uh, huh. And he begins as a drummer in San Francisco. Uh, and he then forms an orchestra with Carol Lofner in the latter in the later 1920s, and starts a long engagement at the San, St. Francis Hotel. Um, he then goes uh, to record swing music for Victor Columbia Decca and Vocalion Records. Um, so he records for Victor Columbia Decca. Uh, in 1933, Mark Sandrich directs a short film for RKO called "So This Is Harris." The film wins an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short because the uh, the short film utilizes a lot of interesting filmmaking techniques. Uh, but the qu- the plot of So This Is Harris is uh, a bunch of comical musical numbers and skits following Phil Harris around. Um, and it, it basically uh, is listened to by a woman named Dorothy and her husband, Walter, uh, who hates Harris. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and then Walter pretends to be Phil to meet a woman while Harris entertains her friend Dorothy. Uh, so like, there's a lot of, it's a, it's an interesting little sketch, but so this isn't the first time Harris has worked with Mark Sandridge. Um, he joins Jack's show in 1936. Harris does, and he's primarily utilized as the band leader, but he's not really the band leader. In fact, he's hired much more to be a personality. He does have a band. The Phil Harris band is the band, but uh, uh, that is on the show and to the point of even having the guitarist Frank Remley on there. But Phil Harris is primarily utilized as a band leader personality. It starts off stiff and he's more of a ladies man. In later years, it grows and evolves into this smarmy, swaggering, man about town, <laughs> Lothario drunk off his ass, cool cat. And uh, it, the jokes about Phil Harris drinking are legendary. Uh, Jack <laughs> took one iota of Phil Harris enjoying a drink here, a drink more uh, more than most, and expanded it into these wild adventures that only your mind can imagine. Like <laughs> the adventures he and Remley have had. According to the Jack Benny program, Phil Harris has been to jail more times than any human being on the planet <laughs> for I mean, drunken that's... and disorderly behavior. <laughs> 
No, to the, he's, to he's got a, his to niche. The, to the point where he has a regular account with the bail, uh, with with the bail, uh, with the bail and parole board. So like, see, that's just they're just being efficient. They're like, we know he's going to keep doing this. Let's just yeah. streamline this process. Nobody has the time for this. We know he's going to get back to drinking again. So let's just get him out of here. Yeah, book him, get him out, book him, yeah. get him out. I'm I'm telling you, Brandon. If you ever decide to go down the well of listening to it, you can also listen to Phil Harris's show that he did with his wife Alice Faye, who was a very uh, prominent 20th Century Fox star, who then retired and upset uh, Daryl Zanuck quite a bunch. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Phil Harris in this movie, he is convincing Jack to go to Reno, Nevada, to set up shop there, and Jack's like, "No, Phil, we're gonna stay right here in New York," uh, and. Phil uh, is a little awkward in this movie like he is with The Man About Town. One thing I noted in the rewatch was that he tends to look down at the floor a little bit. <laughs> His eye line goes down to the floor. It's really weird. Uh, There's a lot of weird stuff like that in this movie, like where like maybe they haven't figured out like their eye lines yet. Like that happens a lot in this. I'm like, yeah, I think they're ja- used well, to radio. Jack, Jack has it. I think Phil is still getting comfortable with uh film and his yeah. ability to be on it because he's not I think he has a much better vocal personality. Uh that obviously comes through in his vocal performances for the Jungle Book and Robin Hood. But uh Harris just seemed to be a little bit it's almost like his personality in this movie is about four years too old. Because by hmm. this point on the radio show he is much more flamboyant and wild and crazy. Here gotcha. he's much more reserved. Yeah um, he is, yeah. And uh, and he's not awkward in this film like he is in Man About Town because he does get some fun moments, but he's a little bit more soft spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so anyway, he is uh, he he is shown the door by Jack because Jack doesn't want to put. Look, we're staying here in New York. You're you're gonna actually do your job and not. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to, off I'm to not Nevada. Going to Nevada. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going out west so you can get your side piece. We're not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Jack, Jack, for all his cheapskateness, does point out something very accurately, which is, is like, you've got a job to do here for next season, so you might or, need to yeah. start getting prepared for shit. Or um, I'm going to send you back up to Albany. Because <laughs> Back to on the Albany night boat, and he goes like, well, at least they threw nickels at me. And Jack I mean, goes, what, what do you think I do every Saturday night? Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, he goes back to talking with Rochester and getting ready to go to the studio to, to work on some stuff. And Rochester goes like, you know, he's got a point. I think we need to get away from the city and all this tinsel and glitter. And Jack just Jack, Jack shoots that down immediately with one of his old Chinese proverbs that he did do regularly on the show. Um, uh, when Butler butt in on business, better find employment elsewhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, better have like next employment up sleeve or something. Have next employment up sleeve. Now yeah. these Confucius jokes are very, very outdated. They are very, very uh, 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 hard to hear. Uh, I don't think they're set in uh, in hurt or in, in it, knowing Jack. These jokes are not meant to offend. They just don't age well. Uh, yeah. They just sound for now. Like I mean, at least to me, like yeah. having watched this one time, I'm like if anything, it just sounds a little hacky and it doesn't yeah. hold up. Yeah, and uh, they are they are very very vaudevillian kind of jokes or like jokes of their era. Um, not even just from the racial connotation, but also 
just the the the, the idea of doing a fortune cookie joke or, or like that kind of joke. it's it's corny yeah. it's very and, corny. The, and the timing of it like the setup all of it was just yeah. a, it's a little yeah yeah they are not the jokes that uh, we remember jack for today if you're a jack benny fan you know that these exist um but he tells him to go get the car and rochester gets out the trusty maxwell the Maxwell <laughs> Touring Car, 1923 <laughs> Maxwell. Now, here's the thing I want to establish up front because we're not a car podcast. But I had to, I had, I had a hard time last night trying to figure out if this is indeed a Maxwell. So I looked up images of the touring Maxwell cars that were used on the show, as well as pictures of actual Maxwells. It seems like it's at the very least the cinematic approximation of. Uh, of the Maxwell car that would end up appearing on the television show because they do look similar when you compare the photos side by side. Um, but the Maxwell car obviously has a lot of history with the Jack Benny fandom because of the mm-hmm. fact that Jack was so cheap, he still held on to this 1923 <laughs> touring car that obvious, honestly, Brandon, the jokes about the Maxwell on radio work better than on television or film because the way they describe this car in various detail at many points, there's no steering wheel on this car. There's no fender on this car. The radiator leaks gallons of water. Like the, the and yeah, the it's one not thing, a car. It's a bomb. Yeah, it's a bomb. It, it's, it's going to <laughs> blow up. Like the fact that Eddie Rochester Anderson is driving it at all is a daredevil feat in and of itself. And it's a car that by all estimation can only get up to about 20 miles an hour maximum. Oh my God. And Rochester, it stalls in the, is driving it. It stalls in the street and Jack looks on and sees that it's being, that that it's having difficulties and it runs into a taxi, (laughs) taxi driver Mm -hmm. uh, played by James Burke. Uh, a character, uh, character actor, Irish American character actor who has a very distinct delivery. You'll see him in other films. Uh, so uh, in other films like No Time for Comedy as an uncredited police sergeant. Uh, you'll see him in College Humor as Cromwell Dexter. He's in Dodge City as the cattle auctioneer. He's got a. He's in at the circus too as John Carter. He is a, a recognizable face. And right here, he goes like, "Listen, you, what's the idea of running into your car? Didn't you put the brakes on?" And Rochester goes, "Brakes? <laughs> That's a good one." <laughs> yeah. I, love, I, Eddie Rochester Anderson is so honest throughout the radio show and the television show of just like, "Look, I know what I know what I'm in." <laughs> like, yeah, he's like, "This is." Tr- Trash. Yeah, he's like, look, like, I I love Jack as a man so much. Like that, Jack of the character is such a hoot and a holler to work for. That I, you know what, like, <laughs> yeah, I I drive around drunk cars. It's this, Mister Taxi Driver. The world is a crazy uh, confluence of events that led me to this exact moment, hanging out with you, and all I can do is giggle. <laughs> yeah, it's like breaks. That's how the yeah. other half lives. Got yeah, breaks, and, and then Jack goes into his con man persona that he's done in films to a certain extent. But this is also an extension of his radio show of him trying to deflect the blame and basically like, now, 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 Mr. Taxi Driver, I saw you run into this poor man. Yeah, you backed (laughs) right into him. Pretending that he has no association with the car. Unfortunately, Rochester gives it away by going, attaboy, boss. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, oh, boss, huh? (laughs) Yeah, so this is your car, huh? And he goes like, Speak up, and he starts hitting the car, and Jack goes, "Stop, stop, stop hitting that fender! They fall off." <laughs> yeah, it's like, like uh, it's like the humor is just so quick. Yeah, 
it's it's very quick considering the considering the the notion of Jack's comedy being drawn out. There's a lot of quick witted gags in these movies, and in the radio show of this era, there's a lot of quick wittedness about it too. Um, and you know, obviously, let's get off the bat. Eddie Rochester Anderson calling Jack boss is a is a terminology of its era. It doesn't sound good when you listen to it within the Jack Rochester confines. I I I don't think you're able to ignore it, but you you do have you do you take it into account while you're in analyzing the dialogue, um, and at any rate, Roche- Rochester uh, is told by Jack, well now you've got to let me borrow your car, and he goes like, fine, I'll take a ta-. and Jack- Rochester doesn't want to use want him to use the car because he wants to use his car for himself, which, yep. you know, more props to him. And Jack goes, well, fine, then I'll take it, uh, take a cab and the fare will come out of your salary. And Eddie immediately goes, here's the keys. And <laughs> well, he also missed a funny line where he's like, oh, it's like a, what do you said, like a piece of junk or something, or it's going to be a junk. It's turning into a piece of junk. And he's oh, like, yeah, this has yeah. been a piece of junk since 1917. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh. An- another and which which is weird because the 1923 touring car would like it would it would it, it this is clearly not the model from 1917 so like no. the, the, they're already just allude one of the things that's lost in the film compared to the radio show is in the radio show you can imagine the car here you have to physically actualize it and so the joke is good it just it it's cut short to my mind by the fact that you see the car <laughs> Um, and you know what like bringing it back to that joke right like you know we were talking about how like just hearing the dialogue boss is definitely like polarizing and doesn't doesn't read well like now Um, right but if you if you're seeing Rochester like the way he's interacting with Jack is like this is not a man that like really either fears his boss or fears losing a job at any time like right like they, like that dynamic of like he's like all right well I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a cab then it's gonna come out of your your pay he's like all right boss like he sort of like gives him the keys like all right well he looks at him almost like all right now you're gonna crash my car like yeah, well, yeah and also to the fact he's just like look I don't want to lose out of my paycheck just because of like this is just a, this is a mm-hmm. battle I can't win at this current moment and like and the dynamic of them of of Eddie Rochester Anderson talking back to him and uh, uh, and uh, 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 insulting Jack is the common trope that makes these interactions worth watching even through a modern lens. Again, as we talked about with Laura, it's a stepping stone process. This isn't this is. isn't progress overnight, um, but it is. Yeah, and like, but the dynamic is like they're like it's so good because. Rochester comes off as like the audience, like the every, like the everyman, right? Where it's like you have a boss who's definitely a diva, out of touch, like thinks this shit doesn't stink, and it's like, oh, this is what you got to deal with, like this, this idiot, <laughs> and it he does it so well, <laughs> and he, he nails it, like just having like borderline, like a little bit of just like contempt. For fucking for, for for Jack, and it's, yeah, I think it's an a it's an it's contempt combined combined with some form of affection, especially as the dynamic goes on. Yes, the way yeah. they are the way they are written late in later episodes of the radio and television show, it really does come down to, and I don't mean this to sound as it's progressive because it's still not because he's still the valet and the butler, but. Mm-hmm. 
the dynamic becomes more of two roommates hanging out in a house. Like that's literally what it becomes with the exceptions of any time Jack is asking Rochester to do something. The interactions become that of you talking with your roommate. Now it's not perfect by any stretch, but it is interesting to suss out. It suss out in the dialogue, especially as you see the way it's performed on television years later up into 1965. Uh, but anyway, Jack takes Rochester's car, and of course, Eddie Rochester Anderson isn't dumb. He gets a modern car, a Studebaker to be exact, uh, according to. Uh, I got this confirmation from a site called uh, custom cr- custom car <laughs> <laughs> and it, it would appear to be a 1938 Studebaker state commander uh, or something of an equivalent nature, but it does look like hmm. a Studebaker. Um, and uh, that, uh, but so basically he takes this nicer car and, we should mention that in the taxi cab and the reason why the the matter gets brushed off rather quickly oh, yeah. is because Joan Cameron is in the car. Joan Cameron. She's uh, in a rush. Yeah. Played by uh, Ellen Drew, uh, a, a, an actress, a film actress of the era who has a, has a unique enough look about her. She's in Isle of the Dead by Val Luton. Uh, she's in the ladies from Kentucky with George Raft, 1939. Uh, she's had leading men in her life, such as Ronald Coleman, William Holden, Basil Rathbone, Dick Powell, and Robert Preston. Um, and, uh, the, uh, so yeah, she, she, her role in this movie fascinates me and we'll talk about it as it develops, but she is off put by the fact that Jack, uh, is, uh, is holding her up and Jack obviously falls in love with her and we're like, oh, we we're getting our love plot here. And the love plot develops into uncomfortable territory from a modern yeah. standpoint from a from a then of its time standpoint i guess it's acceptable but it's but it's still the shakiest of grounds oh. because jack starts friends <laughs> yeah and jack starts driving down and catches up and, and and ends up catching up with this cab on accident starts honking the horn trying to get joan's attention and joan is rightfully so not putting up with it um, this is a part of the Jack Benny character where he's like a would-be Lothario or a would-be ladies' man, like uh, a hopeless romantic. Uh, that uh, there and are elements of terribly. it. terribly. Yeah. Now, the I think the reason why it works and isn't completely creepy is because Jack is so clearly a failure. <laughs> yeah, that, and that is why it kind of works because he's such a bumbling, like, I don't know, like fumbling like boob, but that isn't yeah. like... <laughs> Like, that doesn't, like, negate, like, his motivation for doing it. That he's just no. like, well, I'm just going to go for it. It's like... Yeah. It's like, bro, like, the the way that she just looked at you was like, if you were on fire, she wouldn't put you out. <laughs> yeah. She, she, she would look at you and go, everything burns. And then she would put on a Joker smile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway... Sorry, I was getting an image in my head of Ellen Drew as the Joker. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, man. But, any, but anyway, his pursuit of Joan in the car ends up in another car crash with the taxi driver. And the taxi driver is like, oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's not. He, I, rightfully so, he's not pleased. And then yeah. the cops get involved. Yep. And uh, the uh, uh, she and Joan makes a comment about Jack going like, I know what kind of boy, what kind of person he is. He's the kind of kid who used to 
uh, used to cheat at post office. Um, and which was, I, 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 I looked this up because for years, uh, I have wondered what the, the, uh, uh, the game of post offices, and I'm here to give everybody here the official uh, 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 synopsis of how to play post office. Oh now, this shit! Is a, really? This really? is a kiss. This is a kissing party game. This is the only reason why I just I agreed to do this episode. Is well, to figure and, this and, out. And congratulations, your 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 hard work is paying off because this is how to. This Damn. is how to play. This is how to play this game. That essentially, I would say that spin the bottle supplanted it in the terms of like, because it was primarily like for teenagers at parties, which I'm like, okay, this is all crazy. But this is how you play the game. The group playing is divided into two groups. Typically, a girls' group and a boys' group. One group goes into another room, such as be- such as a bedroom, which is called the post office. To play, each person from the outer group individually visits the post office. Once there, they get a kiss from everyone in the room. Then they return to the original room. Once everybody in the first group has taken a turn, the other group begins sending members into the first room. It's... It's the worst game I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> This, That's this, terrible! What a terrible this, game! This, there are variations on this called the postman's knock. One person chosen by the group to be the postman goes outside and knocks on the door. Another person is chosen by the rest of the group to answer the door and pays for the letter with a kiss. What is, what is then, this sh- shit? Then, then another person is chosen to be the postman, etc. The game has many variations. In some versions, playing cards are used to select which people get to be the postman oh, and man. which get to be the answerer in turn. There's another one called the Pony Express. The post office is a oh. closet or it is in some other dark room. The game is the played the same but can become more intense it is described <laughs> in the 1954 movie Pfft, that's the actual name of the movie as the same as post office but with more horsing around <laughs> what in sweden the game is referred to as riska posten or russian mail post office <laughs> yeah it's terrible what a what a stupid game like yeah, yeah and, we, and we wonder why right in the 40s and 50s and 60s like where it was like oh like they're like oh why do guys just act this way it's because of rays playing post office what the fuck <laughs> the hell is this shit like now, this is, the, shit's nutty like now th- here's here's something i will point out in the 1954 television episode of jack's program with fred allen th- this is mentioned a bunch over cross cop culture in jack's case it's mentioned a bunch on the radio show on a show that he does with Fred Allen, he finds Fred Allen hiding in a closet because he's been talking to Jack's sponsor to try to get Jack fired. And he goes like, what are you doing in the closet? Believe it or not, I'm playing post office. <laughs> Jack goes, post office, and then Allen just goes, kiss me. <laughs> oh, my. So, so, so there is humor to be found in it, but this sounds like a horrifying game. That's a terrible um, game. Long story short, she the taxi driver leaves it to the cop to handle it. The cop goes like, all right, let me see your license. And Jack's trying to trying to bump it off with, but officer, there's been a mistake. I'm Jack Benny. And the cop immediately becomes impressed. Jack Benny, the radio comedian? Yeah, do you listen to my show? Oh, I never miss it. Well, you ought to come, come and see us sometime. And he hands the cop a ticket for a bribe going, here's a ticket for you. And the cop responds with, oh, will you come and see us next Saturday? Here's a ticket for you. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's so good. That, <laughs> that moment is what sold me that this movie is going to be really funny. Like throughout. And there's, a, 
and there's a delayed reaction from Jack, which which stems to the fact that Jack is Jack's form of humor is reactionary. That that's how his humor works. So this movie, what it does beautifully is actually plays off a reaction, whether it's d- delayed action reactions off of Jack's uh singles or when he's in a scene with one or more person like with Eddie Rochester Anderson they play off of the fact that they can react off of each other because they have that two shot whereas in Man About Town it's edited like in a JNL cut situation mm-hmm. where single single here we get a lot more two shot medium yep. two shots here um and so they go to the radio he goes to the radio station he goes in there the Cameron sisters are singing say it of course, of course, the Cameron again. sisters are there, and you and you know, Brandon. Not only do they sing this song, but they 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 don't even just say it all over and over again. They sing it over and over again because this yep. song permeates the movie to a point where I was just like, Enough! it does. <laughs> it's, it it it's shows fun, up constantly. It's a fun song, but it, but hearing it too often, actually, like I'll play a bunch of the songs in this episode. Why, why don't we listen to "Say It Over and Over Again" here? Yay. Yeah. So yeah, as you can hear, uh, it's a trio song consisted of uh, Joan Cameron and her sisters Virginia Cameron and Peggy Cameron. Uh, Peggy is played by Lillian Cornell. Virginia is played by Virginia Dale. Um, and so it's beautiful, beautiful yeah. song. And I Jack's, loved as much the first four hundred times I heard it. <laughs> and Jack sees that Joan is singing, and Joan sees that Jack sees her, and she is thrown off, and so she bundles the audition. And Jack uses his powers as a celebrity to get information on her. Yep, <laughs> that Dude, doesn't play well at all. And her sisters are more than willing to sell her out. <laughs> yeah, I I made a note of that going like why why Virginia, why are you doing that? <laughs> I was like, "Holy damn." Like I'm like the other two are like completely going to sell out their other sister just to make it cuz they're yeah. like, "Well, if Jack has a thing for her, then clearly yeah. we're going to make it too." <laughs> Yeah, well, and and Virginia does say later on, like Peggy's the one that has real talent. So a lot of this seems like an effort to get Peggy uh, more of a platform, and it, so it's it's kind of. But strange. you don't find that out until later. Like no, no, you don't find it out till later. Here, it's just established that they're just a trio that that has bungled an audition, which also they're hearing their voices. That should be enough for them to be like, "You're hired, ladies." Like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You're done. Here's here's the account for Pepsi and toothpaste. Do a jingle about it. Like <laughs> that 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 does boggle my mind. And like so she he Jack wants to get information on her and then he leaves to go do whatever he's doing. And the uh the NBC uh the NBC page there 
uh, is pulled over by Virginia Dale going like, is that Mr. Benny? Is that Jack Benny? And she, and he goes, it ain't Carmichael lady. Already <laughs> this film is, is laying into the legacy of Jack on radio as a pop culture celebrity and icon. So what's interesting is that this film is directly referencing real life uh, as a source for its comedy. So it's very, uh, 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 insider showbiz like showbiz tale like the the yeah. only modern equivalent you have of this is honestly things by Kevin Smith and Seth Rogen where Dude, James and Bob Strike Back yeah. yeah I was gonna say that man cause like if you want like a let's say like a Cliff Notes version of like what Kevin Smith does in his characters and his legacy watch Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back they they sort of they touch upon as much as possible in like what the 90 minute runtime. Yeah. Uh, right. It's, it's, it's longer. It's about 104 minutes, something like that. But ah, anyway, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. credits there. Yeah. But, but there's also the element of like, you know, obviously it's shuddering to talk about this studio now, but Miramax, uh, is used as a joke throughout Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, similar to the way that Jack's radio show is used as a joke uh, mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, so, like, there's there's direct referencing it. But Virginia Dale g- starts concocting a plan immediately, going like, well, well uh, I know what we can do to get famous, and that that doesn't play well either. There's a lot of elements of the showbiz uh intermingling here that is very outdated and as we've learned over time in the within the last decade of how how much things have not changed it plays wow it plays rough today it plays rough well what i liked about the movie right is that like every character in this film is flawed in some way shape or form right except for eddie rochester except for eddie yeah right except for rochester yeah (laughs) right that's why their story is like the best one in the movie i'm like I'm like you're rooting for these two the entire goddamn time, um, yep. and, and dude, and, yeah, like you were saying, right? Nothing. It sounds terrible to say, but have things really changed at all? No, they haven't. No, they haven't. No, and, and, and that's unfortunate to the multitude of things that exist in this film. That it's not from a lack of trying. People... Well, yeah, no, there's trying, but there's but there's also like it. It it's understandable when people are frustrated about this and talk about it today on a social media forum or in the press because we should have been past a lot of these things a long time ago. So Jack finds out the address of Joan Cameron and he and Rochester go up to the, uh, to the front of the apartment where Joan and her sisters live and they've got a box of candy and he tells Rochester, all right, go up there and deliver this package to Joan Cameron. Now, it it, it may seem like Jack's just trying to, like, pawn this off on Rochester, and there is an element to it. Um, But uh, he is, I I guess from a logic standpoint, Jack is is trying to not frustrate her further and so it's like a in a, 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 a use a messenger to deliver the message of love. yeah rochester's but, gonna soften it gonna soften yeah. you know sort of diffuse the tension a little bit then jack can come in be you know be jack sh- yeah. you know smooth things an, out exactly and there's an element of it where they're going like you know i don't know what i don't think a box of candy is gonna is gonna solve any of this issue and Jack's like, well, that you know, what? There's nothing wrong with this candy, Rochester. It's it's perfectly delicious. And Rochester goes, it ought to be. I made it. Yeah. <laughs> and and then Jack go- <laughs> goes, you made it. Listen, Rochester, who put the nuts in? You did. <laughs> yeah, that that's better. What if I told you that this is this is not uh, 
uh, uh, unfamiliar ground for them because the, the, there's a lot of jokes within the radio show about Jack having side businesses like a laundry service, a diaper service, uh, a greeting card service, where he and Rochester, it's not him making Rochester do all the work. It's both of them literally like concocting more schemes to make more money because Jack is so money mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, you get the sense that like he needs Rochester because as Rochester is going up the steps to go into the building, he's rattling off all the things that he's doing. And he's kind of like, where do I have the time to do all these things? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a joke in one of the radio shows where he goes, uh, Akia, uh, listing his occupation for the IRS, and he goes like Butler, chauffeur, uh, but Butler, chauffeur, washer, and author of What to Do in Your Spare Time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and he goes up to the apartment, and he expects to knock on the uh, expects the door to open to one of the Cameron sisters, but it's not. It's Josephine Templeton, played by the lovely Teresa Harris, and Sparks and, Ignite, and yeah, oh, off oh my we go. God. This. This love story is the heart of the movie. This is the heart of this movie, hands down. And what's interesting about that heart is that it only beats for about, I want to say, a combined total of about seven minutes out of this 80-minute movie. Yeah. So it's it's unfortunate that we don't get more of this story here. We de- We technically get more of it in the sequel to this film, Love Thy Neighbor, because Teresa Harris is in the movie, uh, playing the same role. But here... We get this scene where Rochester's supposed to deliver this candy. He meets Josephine, and automatically he's just like, "Well, this candy is uh, this candy's getting delivered, but my priorities have changed, uh, and rightfully Absolutely. so." Absolutely, because now he's got to meet this lovely lady, and Rochester is very polite, very mannered. Yeah, very. Yeah, and he's not a creepy guy. He's a gentleman, and Teresa Harris is. Uh, is very, very taken by this young man, Rochester Van Jones, his full name. Uh, and <laughs> there's like these subtle moments of this uh, thing, like where it's just so sweet and so lovely. Like, you know, I'm sure glad I uh, delivered this package, Josephine. I am too, Rochester. And then it's a great shot that Sandrich gets of him clearly being uh, b- being so you know, shy he then proceeds to uh have a kind of a light dinner with josephine meanwhile jack is waiting outside <laughs> in the he, rain he in the leaves. rain <laughs> like like rochester's in there planting the seeds of like this beautiful relationship meanwhile jack is outside getting just pissed on by the rain and yep. it's wonderful it's wonderful. It, it plays into Jack being the hard luck, sad sap guy who can't get a break. And well, he also uh, kind of the, deserves it, right? He mm. he deserves this because he just went over there unannounced, once again, <laughs> did not take a hint from the woman at all, and now he's outside sucking on rain. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, this is what you get for being a weird creeper with Joan Cameron. <laughs> it's like this your car, your your comedic car, punishment. <laughs> your car hit her once, then you hit her, and now you're outside of her building. Yeah. You, 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 you are technically set up for the rain. Like, the good thing is, is that with the writing of these films is that they build up to the fact that Jack gets what's coming to him. Uh, 
and here in the in the in in the living room of the Cameron uh, Cameron residence. Which, by the way, if these guys are auditioning for fucking radio work what as singers, cool. how are wow. they affording a maid? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, they are like whew, they are flush with cash. They, but then why are they trying to get it's, so this is clearly all just about getting Peggy famous this has nothing yeah, to do with no. them trying to survive as human beings or as no. actual artists nobody said they were poor they're just <laughs> trying to be famous that's, that's they're already uh, Zach you know this they're already white and wealthy they're already uh, there <laughs> now they want the white fame too they can't uh, just they can't just be quiet and wealthy and just live their lives no 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 they need to have the the spotlight shine on them now, to again, the point that the two sisters are pretty much selling out their sister for like a pound you know for like a 10 minutes of fame yeah for 40 shekels or whatever like that that is, is very ew, very gross ew, disgusting <laughs> Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter at this particular moment because Josephine and Rochester are hitting it off. They're having a lovely conversation. There's flirting going on back and forth. This is a rom-com that I want. And it's, and it, and it, and obviously there's the matter of discussing how this, this imagery feels very progressive and uh, from a content level in the terms of taking time away from our white actors to focus on this subplot between two uh, between two African American actors who are getting to engage in their own story that isn't a, that isn't strictly offensive it's not being used to denigrate their image to my mind um it's mainly being used to uh give Rochester a subplot that is completely appropriate and completely lovely um which I, still, I mean, yeah. which is great. I love it. But I also feel like they probably had to do yeah. it. You're going to have him in the movie. You better give Rochester something to work with. <laughs> yeah. And because he can't just be Jack's chauffeur. He has no. to. You have to expand on that popularity. And what's amazing is, is that the final result that we get uh, leads to a very kind and gentle rom-com uh, subplot for Je- uh, for Rochester and Josephine. It's not perfect. It's still loaded with imagery and content that is uh, outdated, but it is so so lovely to look at. Um, and and it does it, and it can warm your heart if you're looking at it from this lens of this is the major stepping stone by comparison to like. Cabin in the Sky, which is a progressive film in the respect of its all, all African-American cast and the amount of time and effort put into it. But it still contains a lot of uh, troubling um, uh, stereotypes within it. So it's a it's a film that you got to watch with context and caution here. You still need that context and caution, but it is a I think it is much more. It plays even better. Um and it actually leads into My My. Now, before we talk about My My, I'm going to play for the audience the song My My between Eddie Rochester Anderson and Teresa Harris. All right. I want to shout a poem about how I dream of that gleam in your eyes. I want to shout, but all that comes out is my mind. I want to sing of flowers in spring, but oh dear, when you're near, I just die. 
I want to sing and can't sing a thing but my, my. I should say, oh, how lovely. I should say, ah, how sweet. I should have Shakespeare at the tip of my tongue. But every time we meet, I look at you and what do I do? I get weak, I can't speak, I just sigh. And though I try, the best I can sigh is my, my. Come to think about it, you're sort of sweet, strictly elite, not too bold, not too cold, but so shy. You're sort of sweet, so I repeat, mama. You kind of smart the way you capturing my heart with that line, you divine little girl. Mm, you kind of smart to make a fine art of mama. Ah, ah, ah. You could say, how intriguing. Or you could say, how petite. Their Webster in the palm of my hand But every time we meet dead pigeons You don't do bad, in fact I might add you're my type And time's right, so goodbye Why, Josephine, that's just what I mean by my mind This song is fucking wonderful, Brandon. This is an amazing duet. It's a nice moment. And it and it and it stems off as I've talked about in the uh, uh in the on the you can't film Jack panel. We get to see more of Eddie Rochester Anderson's dance moves that he developed in vaudeville, so he's extending from different styles of dance throughout as the as the camera moves and as the dance scene is progressing. He and Josephine are going through several different dance moves from different dance types. And they are given this two shot that's wonderful that shows their interaction. Um, and basically you watch them fall in love over the course of a song. Uh, and it's and it's actually one of those lovely instances where that actually works. Um, and I got to be honest, also from a technical standpoint, the filming of this is remarkable because that shot covers them through different sections of the apartment from inside to outside back to inside. Like you notice how yeah. the camera's kind of moving with them. Like it's not like Whoa. the most groundbreaking, but it's slick. Like it looks efficient and tight and visually it's- striking. It's it's funny, right? Because even like you know, like the beautiful moment with you know Rochester and uh, Josephine, right? Like I even have to remember and remind myself that at this point in time, films were written and told a little bit differently. Things move faster. Like you get to like these moments where like a character, two characters can fall in love with each other like pretty quickly, and like now it'd be like if you saw that, you'd be like, well, that was pretty quick. That yeah, was pretty our, accelerated. 
our modern logic wouldn't allow us to accept it. I think you yeah. you have to have the ability to turn your brain on to the idea of like, okay, this is how storytelling was constructed then compared mm-hmm. to now. You could probably still do something like this in a musical movie. I think that's the only genre where that still works. In a rom-com, you can't do it. You've got to, you've got to develop the love story. You do. Um, uh, but here we get a lot of progression i think i feel like the dance sequence even as much as the banter back and forth prior the dance sequence is one of the most innovative and i i would want to say uh unintentionally progressive moments of the movie and i say unintentionally because i don't think jack obviously has input but jack for the most part he was sort of ignorant to bigotry because he couldn't understand or mentally process why somebody would hate somebody for the color of their skin. Like it, it literally was a concept that just didn't register with him because he's just like, well, that makes no sense at all. Why you would hate somebody because of the color of their skin, which again, extends to Jack being this wonderful, kind human being in real life. Um, cutting also intercutting itself also with Jack getting further humiliated. Like <laughs> it really, really hits home. Now it's I good. haven't, I had a note about the cut, the dance number, um, coming from Kathy Fuller Seeley, who provided some notes for me for research um, from uh, the from the Academy notes, uh, the uh, uh, the first dance between Rochester and Josephine in the apartment is marked with a little taped flag out to the side of the script in pencil on the script page, however, is cut dance. And there's some uh, and, and we'll talk about there's some other things that are cut, but it almost sounds like they were trying to get rid of this dance at one point. Hmm. So, so according to Kathy's oh. research, it seems like they might have been trying to cut this dance, which to well, me, you would... know, the studio meddling all the time. Well, it, and, and I'm not sure I, I would have to elaborate further on it. Maybe I'll do it in a follow up episode where I discuss that. But there's, you know, the censors in such like this, like we'll talk about it later. But like, it seems like there was very little objection to this film. And there's reasons for that. But so the the dance uh, ends in this crescendo of vibrant swing music and ja- uh, Rochester and Teresa are getting down and just having a, a ball dancing with each other. Um, and Jack gets into the apartment and this wonderful shot of Jack uh, standing there while Eddie is extending his hands out in the dance and then feels Jack and then slowly, slowly gets depressed and goes, I'm afraid to look. <laughs> <laughs> turns and he looks is it raining outside no rochester i was eating a grapefruit and it got out of control <laughs> oh man such a good line yeah and then they and then he jack tells him that we're gonna leave and rochester's like don't forget about tonight honey rochester and he's just coming <laughs> and they go back to the apartment and J- jack and rochester have this thing about like you know like Rochester is the logical point of this film like he is in Man About Town where he's like the guy who gives dispenses the wisdom in a rom-com and here he's just like Jack I think you're coming to the wrong conclusion about uh how this romance is going to unfold like you do realize that she's already said no right <laughs> like <laughs> yeah she, he's the he's the audience yeah He's the audience going like, oh, Jack, you do realize that the uh, consent was not given. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, like Jack, like, I mean, stalkers have been charged for less. Like, Yes, ex- exactly. J- Jack, you're going to jail. So mm-hmm. he tells Rochester that he, Rochester's trying to get out, uh, get, get the night off so that he can go on this date he already planned. And Jack goes, no, we're going to stay here until Miss Cameron calls. 
And he's just going like, well, then we're in for a long night because that's <laughs> never happening. <laughs> Except it does. And he, it and does. He ex- and he does express the fact that he can't believe it. But then when he gets the call and he goes like, oh, hello, Miss Cameron. Rochester goes, now anything can happen. <laughs> and I'm just like, yep. yes, you're right, Eddie. Anything can happen in this movie and it will. And uh, But it's not Joan calling. It's Virginia. Nope. And she sets up a meeting at a, a nightclub with them stop being uh, nice she sells out her sister so, yeah he she sells out her sister that's right she sells out her sister for fame by arranging a date with jack at this nightclub uh we go to the nightclub and phil harris is at the bar um but restraining himself it seems <laughs> of course because that's where he lives get, get the- <laughs> you know there's a cot behind the bar that nobody can see him and him and Frank Remley duking it, do kicking back brew, playing cards, and then wondering what mischief they'll get up to tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Remley will will become a discussion point at some point. I want you to listen to some of the Remley jokes at some point and just get your reaction to the crazy <laughs> stories they give Remley. Um, but um, but yeah, he he uh, the they kind of they kind of sidestep the alcohol by. Him going like anything more to drink, Mister Harris. He goes like, "I'll stick with the corn." You know me. That's <laughs> actually a reference to the fact that he was there. There are they. They really harped on Phil Harris at the time on the radio show in the script for being a corny comedian. <laughs> like, uh, and they at one point they said like, "You're, you're the uh, corn pone is one term they called him. Another one they were doing the life story of the actors on the Jack Benny program, and he goes. Oh, it's on Fred Allen show. They're making fun of it. And he goes like, um, I'll be Phil Harris, King of Corn. <laughs> like, so uh, in, in Jack's show, they have an instance where the Blue Fairy is waking all the cast members up for the opening season. And she goes like, oh, little, <laughs> a little Phil Harris, come blow your horn. The sheep's in the meadow and the field's in the corn. <laughs> corn? <laughs> oh, man. But he gets a call from Brenda Tracy and he puts aside a conversation with Charlie uh, the press agent uh, for Fred Allen. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Fred Allen. The Fred Allen Jack Benny feud is famous, infamous, all around wonderful in the Jack Benny world. <laughs> it started with a little boy named Stuart Kanan playing the bee on his violin at the age of 10 years old on Fred Allen's radio show. Fred Allen quipped back in his uh, famous ad-libbing fashion. How do you like that? Five years old or ten years old, and already he plays better than Jack Benny. And Jack <laughs> and his writers heard this. Jack laughed his ass off, and the two started conducting a feud over the air, a fake feud over the air that lasted up until Fred's death in the mid fifties. Um, oh man, sounds like Fre- a sounds like the original version of like what Matt Damon and Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> it is. It very much is. It, it very much is. It's such a loving feud that has all the has a lot of love behind it and the um the impetus of charlie graham uh, as a character is that it's fred allen's press agent trying to dig up dirt on jack so that fred has more material for his show um which doesn't seem right because fred allen was such a quick ad libber that he would he didn't need a press agent to do digging he would have just come up with something and been like oh uh-huh, fred jack is so cheap like that 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 would have been the thing so Phil Harris gets the call from Brenda Tracy played by Kate Lineker and he's going like don't worry baby I'm going to you know I'm going to get get Jack out to Nevada just you wait I'll figure something out and his opportunity arrives when 
Jack and the Cameron sisters arrive at the club and they get into a conversation about Jack. Uh, Jack's basically trying to impress Joan and everything like that. And uh, uh, Jack goes to dance with Virginia before the sisters go up to sing. Mm -hmm. And Virginia reveals that she's the one who made the call uh, and explains to Jack don't don't take it so hard from Joan. She only thinks that real men come out from the West. <laughs> and he's like, ah, from Chicago, and that's uh, <laughs> it's west of Waukegan. Uh, yeah. uh, I, 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 I was born in Waukegan, and that's west of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, get, get rid of the Rockies, and uh, that's pretty much there. But you don't understand, Brandon. She's not looking for somebody who is west of the East Coast. She's looking for a man, a, a man's real man. man of the West. Or she's looking for somebody like me. You know, she wants somebody very stereotypically rugged, tough, and possibly racist. One-dimensional? Um, yes, one-dimensional. I had no other talent beyond my one delivery. Um, <laughs> he delivered it very well for decades, but... Yeah, there's it, a reason why people have issues with me and my legacy. And no. it doesn't just have to do with my personal life. No, it has to do not, with my limited range. Not John Wayne. He's not oh, polarizing yeah. at all. No, not at all. Not they should name all. an airport after him. Because <laughs> why not? Yeah. Um. But anyway, they go back to the table and Jack starts... Bra or Virginia tries to sell her sister out again by selling up Jack as a real rough and tough Western guy. And the way they, the way they verify this is by saying, don't forget he plays Buck Benny on the air. And, and Jack yeah. goes like, Oh, I know that may seem like a character, but deep down that's the real me. And it's, and Phil sees this as an opportunity going like, Oh, I know how to get to, to Nevada. I'm going to play this to the hilt. And so he, alludes to the fact that jack has a ranch in nevada yeah <laughs> and he goes is, like, well, he's such oh my god he's such a shithead on top of it right not to mention he, yeah he mooches himself into the dinner uh-huh yeah <laughs> and now, he was like oh who's paying for this and he's like yeah. oh well i wasn't even invited well, oh, what so a scumbag taking, so you're taking jack's side <laughs> well, yeah he <laughs> because, just moots his way in he moots his way in for a free drink champagne <laughs> all around he didn't pay for the last round the cheap son of a bitch. And then Jack's going to get stuck he's with not this. The cheap, he's not the cheap one, though. Phil is taking advantage of Jack's opportunity to make to point out Jack's cheapskateness. That's kind of the brilliance of this uh, scene. I, I, I guess. But I, I understand what you're saying. I think it does mooch. look like Phil is mooching. But it, yeah. it, to me, it's more or less just to be like interfere. Like, oh, I'm going to give Jackson some 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 shit here. Uh, and yeah, you got cut work. off at the bar because he ran out of money. <laughs> but but that's that's not phil's fault that's jack's fault for not paying him that much in this universe mm. oh so, yeah you know. i guess that point could be made yeah so like he underpaid his actors in in the fake persona yep. so the cameron sisters get up to sing for jack they sing say it over and over again and we go we heard it over and over again oh. <laughs> uh and uh they finish singing charlie is invited to the table he starts getting more information about this Western persona that Jack's got for himself, but he hasn't revealed who he is yet. And finally, the conversation ends uh, with 
Charlie leaving the table and Jack goes, he was a nice fellow. Who is he? And Phil goes, Fred Allen's press agent. Oh, (laughs) Fred Allen's press agent. And then we start getting these transitions into the radio world where we hear Fred Allen uh, making some jokes about Jack in the Western garb. Jack's going to go as far west as the first toll bridge or something. (laughs) (laughs) They just shit on Jack for about five minutes. It's the, it's the beauty of that Jack character. You, you, you it's pretty funny. the shit out of him. And then it retorts with the, the way this is always reciprocated on the radio show is, is that the rest of the cast members would give Jack shit too. And Jack's the only one who's really um, anti Fred Allen. Fred Allen is like the Thanos of the <laughs> Jack Benny universe. If Thanos was loved by everybody except for Iron Man, <laughs> yeah. like that's how this plays out. <laughs> Like the only thing we're missing by the time we get to live, love thy neighbor is Fred Allen going, I am inevitable. <laughs> and I mean, just genocide. <laughs> <laughs> no more resurrections this time, Mr. Benny. <laughs> oh. and, uh, and so they do the reveal back and forth. We actually get Mary Livingston's cameo in here. Now, Mary mm-hmm. Livingston, we have not talked about her on really beyond her, her marriage to Jack or her participation on the radio show. Um, Mary is only in one other film uh, called This Way, Please, where she plays a side character. Uh, and her her relationship on the radio show is that she she's brought in primarily to fill in a role that was needed for the Mary Livingston, a, a Jack Benny fan from Plainfield, New Jersey. It ended up evolving into this comedian character that was multifunctional, whether she was a secretary, a sometimes girlfriend to Jack, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she married Jack. Uh, she married Jack in 1927. Uh, and uh, she, there's a lot of things when it comes to Mary because she is, a complicated figure. Not everybody really got a full grasp of her. When you listen to their relationship, there's a lot of talk of Jack uh, worshiping and adoring Mary, but there are perceptions of Mary that are scattered to the wind, depending on who, what camp you talk to. Needless to say, Mary was a very complicated figure, and her vocal who appearance... Who isn't complicated? This, well... When it comes to Jack's legacy, Brandon, it's a very complicated issue because it's um, it. Uh, she was a perf- she was one of the most popular performers on the radio show. Okay. By the fifties, she had developed stage fright, mic fright, oh, after man. years because the, because the pressure of delivering on that persona each week had gotten to her. Yeah, and she so had anxiety, she, stress. Yeah, yeah, and so I, it's almost like Mary was not set up to be a performer initially, and so. Gotcha. Even though working, even she, though she worked with him uh, in vaudeville and in early radio, um, there's uh, there's clearly a, a case of Mary not being fully comfortable in her skin, apart from playing the role of Mrs. Jack Benny, his wife. Um, uh, so, but the, her vocal cameo is wonderful. She does her trademark laugh, makes a jack, crack against Jack. The whole buildup of this radio sequence leads to the fact that the sponsor insists that Jack go to Nevada <laughs> for the radio show. <laughs> and Jack is like basically looking at Phil in his room going, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, you sandbagged me. And he, he starts going through prep. He, he puts a bunch of things in his 
uh, suitcase among which is a gun that Phil sees and goes like, oh, that's a that's a nifty little piece. And he goes, yeah, I picked that up at a department store. And Phil shoots it and it squirts out water. <laughs> and but so anyway, though, they, they they have the squirt gun gag. And then uh, 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 a delivery boy comes up to the to the um, uh, door and says, uh, 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 J- Miss Cameron wouldn't accept the flowers, um, Mrs. Uh, uh, Mr. Benny. Um, and so he is output. Joan doesn't, Joan can't stand him. He's got to go out West. This is all, this is all completely going against his way. And in the midst of this, this delivery boy is still standing there and, uh, he's a bald gentleman and he goes, well, why are you still standing there? And he asks Jack, can I have one of those flowers for my hair? And then he goes, get out, get out. And he pushes him out. This character, Brandon, is Harry Baldwin, who was Jack's secretary, and Jack loved the sound of his voice and would use him in the radio show as a guy who would randomly enter into the radio show to do these non sequiturs. So this is like consistent with his, and they always mention the fact that he was bald. Um, I wish I had more information on Baldwin. It seems like he kind of falls off the map after he leaves Jack's show. But anyway, Virginia concocts a plan with Peggy to get them out west too so that they can all collaborate with each <laughs> of other of course to, to the the ultimate scheme to get Joan and Jack together oh. um it's it's like a Marx Brothers movie where they have to get the young lovers together Brandon except it's yes. creepy <laughs> it's like a terrible arranged marriage yeah this, oh. it's, it's all kinds of silly and again there are fans of this movie as I am a fan of this movie where there's an element of it that is, you know, sweet, but you have to look at it from the modern context. It's like, yeah, this is, this is strange. Let's oh, examine I, this please. <laughs> oh, I love this movie, but there's tons of moments in this movie where I'm like, Oh, Oh my God. What the hell is this? It, oh. It's outdated forms of romance. Yeah. And you have, and I think you, you part of you needs to accept it for what it is at the time because a lot of these tropes end up permeating into the 90s and 2000s so it's not like these tropes went away um and uh they go out west they drive out there and the car <laughs> stops well the, the cameron sisters take a train over there and uh joan is kind of subtly getting hints of like well caldwell nevada what does that mean to me well i guess <laughs> I, I it certainly can't mean that my sisters are selling me into a marriage but <laughs> no of course not uh, and so but jack and phil and rochester are driving out they are they, they they're out of gas uh, in uh, in the middle of the desert, and Jack dramatizes it too much and goes, "We're gonna die like rats in this desert." And, <laughs> uh, and Phil's just like, "Don't be ridiculous. Well, we just gotta ho- hoof it over to the hotel." Jack tells Rochester to stay in the car, and uh, Rochester goes like, "I don't want to stay out here. Besides, it's your uh, and, he, and Rochester." And Jack goes. You know, like, well, somebody's got to stay with it. Besides, it's your car. And Rochester goes, want to buy it cheap? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't like it that much. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I prefer not to die of heat exo- heat stroke in the desert, please. Um, and uh, they leave Rochester out there in the middle of the desert, which seems like absolutely horrible. It does give this moment for Rochester to look at a cow's skull that's in the middle of the desert. And he goes, cow, who were you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know. I, I I took that as like one of those like cartoon gags that just really works for it. They get Jack and Phil get to the hotel, uh, and he goes like, "Wow, it's a, it's amazing that we made it." And Phil 
you know, ribs him back like, yeah, we would have died like rats in that desert. <laughs> like, So there's an instance of Phil having a good charismatic moment in there, like talking back to Jack. And as they get to the hotel, they run into uh, they, they they are walking around and they run into Brenda Tracy. And then you suddenly hear. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and Jack turns and goes, Andy. And Dennis Day. Oh. Um, we talked a little bit about Andy. Let's talk about Dennis Day. He is the tenor that stayed with Jack the most. He was the tenor, the Irish tenor singer on Jack's radio show. He played the role of a silly kid uh, who was kind of clueless, uh, naive, uh, and downright silly. Like, Brandon, I'm talking, you think I'm silly? This is where it stems from. It so, has to stem from Dennis Day because it could stem from no other place. <laughs> this is where it stems from, Dennis Day. Well, I think that I think there's a lot of uh, Billingsley <laughs> and Dennis Day I've lifted from to become the goofball I am today. Uh, Dennis Dennis Day though was discovered by Mary Livingston, uh, and Jack put him on a contract um, after Kenny Baker had left. Uh, uh, to go off and become a movie star with the Marx Brothers, and that didn't work out at all. And uh, no, uh, yeah, it didn't? Uh, he's in at the circus. Watch at the circus, and you'll understand why Kenny Baker never had a leading man career. Um, oh, he's, a, man. he's Kenny Baker was a talented guy, but no, uh, ain't happening. He's not. He's not bad in that movie, but it's very clear why. Um, and the character of Dennis was this naive kid who was a talented singer. He had a mother played by Verna Felton, who was this overbearing bulldozer of a woman <laughs> who would be like, uh, who would basically berate Jack and prop up her boy, but also question why was her boy such an idiot? Uh, there, there's a lot of elements to it. At this point, the Dennis Day character isn't completely cemented. So Dennis's involvement in this movie is honestly kind of weak because He's basically just there to be like, I'm staying here. I'm staying over the summer here with Andy. And yeah, we don't really yeah. get a lot of instances of Dennis's humor. When you listen to Dennis on the radio show and watch him on the television shows later, he's much more involved and he's much more comedically involved. As talented as a singer he was, um, Dennis was also a very good um, uh uh, uh, he he knew uh, dialects very well, and hmm. he was a good comedian. Um, he actually his you would know him, ladies and gentlemen, as the voice of Johnny Appleseed in the Disney version of Johnny Appleseed from Make My Music, I believe it is. Um, you know where he goes, the Lord is good to me. You know, like that um, or in Melody Time in that uh, and that Johnny C perform and that Johnny Appleseed performance is in the movie Melody Time. Uh, and uh, he was also known for a lot of novelty songs like Clancy Lowered the Boom, Christmas and Killarney, a lot of Irish theme songs, McNamara's Band. Um, I might do an episode where I just play a bunch of Dennis Day songs because they Man. are so delightful to listen to. I mean, I, I think I'm going to listen to those tonight. I think I'm going to have a real rager over here and put on some fin Dennis Day tracks. and just fin fin Finnegan's Wake is a fun one to listen to. <sighs> like, I would imagine if you're drinking to that song, it must be a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So Andy and Dennis are hanging out with each other on their ranch, which I want to know the adventures that Dan Dennis Day and Andy Devine are having on their ranch before Jack gets here, because it's two very goofy characters that could get up into all kinds of hijinks. Yeah. But Andy like, seems they're like they're going to hurt themselves. Yeah. But he's a responsible ranch owner. And so, uh, uh, 
Andy tells Jack that he's been having trouble with some cattle rustlers up near his place. And they've been, you know, uh, he, they've been getting my Indians drunk on fire water. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> oh. we'll get more into this, but this is the first of many oh, negative man. Native American stereotypes. Took the last with, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, oh. but we're, and we're going to get to it here in a second. But um, the basic established point of this is that Jack still believes that Joan is not coming. Uh, or is is not is is not it, it, it has forgotten her, but he's still writing to Joan. He's mm-hmm. dictating a letter to Rochester about like basically stealing Andy's story, going like, "Well, I guess that's about it, Joan. There's been some cattle rustlers, a, a ruin in my plot of land, and whatnot." <laughs> and Rochester's typing this out, going like, "This fucking guy, <laughs> like, <laughs> the balls on this guy, the this balls. balls on this my my employer." The braggart, <laughs> this fumbling idiot that I left out in the rain. Yeah, and then they and then they uh, basically uh, they they finish up the letter, and we get a scene. We get an establishing scene where a hotel Native American uh, uh, is given <laughs> towels to deliver to Jack Benny's room. Um, now it's a it's a west it, it's a it's a Native uh, the the. Um, the employees are Native American themed, I guess, and it's like this isn't uh, an unknown trope in this era. Um, there were these, you know, elegant hotels out west that had these hotel Indians, as they are referred to. But, Not my words, the movie's words. Um, <laughs> but these you want to talk about you want to talk about not aging well, though. Yeah, we're gonna get to it because there's two instances of this that are very, very troubling. One is is that so they hear Jack and Rochester hear the 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 cries of a wolf and they are scared that there's a wolf outside and we see Eddie Rochester Anderson devolve into we see him devolve into the scared and cowardly uh African American stereotype which was permeated by uh folks like Step and Fetch It mm-hmm. and um i uh um this this Rochester devolves into this neg- negative connotation of a scared African American. Yeah, they, they uh, turn him into that, like a, a man child. Yeah, and a coward. And this yeah. is a this is a trope that's uh, perpetrated by folks like Mantan Moreland um, and uh, Step and Fetch It. Uh, Mantan Moreland, by the way, was a good friend of Eddie Rochester Anderson's. Um, but um, and from. From Mantan Moreland, when you watch his stuff, watch watch the things he's in. It's unfortunate that he was stuck into a lot of uh, un- uncomfortable, very uh, negative situations regarding racial stereotypes. Um, but so this one, this particular portrayal, it doesn't sit well. Even with Jack in the room, it still doesn't sit well. Um, and then it's doubled down after they they get relief from this situation because. Um. Uh. The the howls turn out to be from a radio program, which that gag's kind of funny. Of like, you know, you hear something outside, you think it's real, and it turns out it's coming from a radio program. It's kind of a gag that can only work in the era of radio. It doesn't really work today yeah. because we don't have radio as a primary form of entertainment. Um. But then they uh are are scared that. They they become scared of Native Americans possibly being lurking around. They open the door, and the Native American uh, hotel clerk comes in with the towels, and Jack says, it's a massacre. Run for your lives. Um, oh, stop, man. 
and Rochester runs away scared too. Now, there's a line by the hotel clerk that I found interesting where he goes, well, I'll be doggone. Like, he he literally, they Mark Sandritz gives him this reaction shot of, like, those racist motherfuckers. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. The, the, I I view his reaction as almost like wow, like you would th- you would think that they at least be creative with their racism, or at least somewhat subtle. What something that's interesting about the Jack Benny radio show is is that they 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 don't succeed at this, but there were attempts to break. There's always like attempts to uh, call into question the silliness of Native American stereotypes, but unfortunately, the way they engage in it is by using stereotypes and kind of doubling down on them to point out the ludicrous, the ludicrous nature of them, but they don't work. Like it's, it's like, it's a, it's um it's not even a nice try. <laughs> like, oh, it's cause um, they're hacky and offensive. <laughs> yeah. They are hacky offensive and not needed anywhere. Um, so Jack and Rochester run. Phil goes, Oh my God, Jack, that's a, that's the hotel Indian. Again, the movies where it's not mine. And, um, and Jack immediately pawns off the fear onto Rochester going like, did you see how scared Rochester was? So doubling down on that stereotype, but it does point to Jack being the jerky boss that he is oh, where yeah. he immediately points to him being braver than Rochester, which is obviously not true. Um, yeah. The tone deaf, famous, rich boss. Very much so. And as the, plot moves along we are we we get the the um the notification that the cameron he jack spies that the cameron sisters have indeed arrived in the hotel and jack comes up with the plan of uh andy divine doesn't know it yet but we're moving in on his ranch and he strikes a deal with andy to have andy pretend that this is jack's ranch um and they invite the cameron sisters out there for a day out on the ranch along with Tracy, mm-hmm. uh, Miss Tracy and Phil and Jack comes out in this bedazzled cowboy outfit that is hilarious. <laughs> and when you hear Andy Devine and see Andy Devine laugh at it, that laugh must be genuine because it is a ridiculous cowboy outfit. Oh my God, it, dude. It's, it's so obnoxious. Like, like, and that's the thing too, where it's like, clearly Jack is like, He's trying to say something about people like this. Like, there's no way that you do you put together that kind of outfit, even as yeah. like a joke, without trying to like show to the audience that like people like this character that he's playing. They're they're ridiculous. They're ridiculous people. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's 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 interesting how he comments on the naivety of. East Coast elites or show business people who aren't in the middle of a rough and tugged, rough and rough and tough scenario, you know. Um, and then when Rochester comes out with his Western garb, Andy laughs at it. I think it looks fine. Like it, it's certainly not bedazzled with jewelry like Jack's is. It's probably not. It's not. It's not efficient. Oh man, I, see, I saw it, Rochester. I was like, oh, poor man. Oh, yeah. he, he even has to follow his boss into this stupid idea. Oh. Yeah. On that front, it on that front it is re- it is unfortunate and sad. But I was more comparing the costumes themselves. Well, yeah, and Ro- you, I feel like Rochester is definitely of that similar like mind of of like oh wow, all right, this this shit. <laughs> 
he doesn't he he's the only spark of hope that Rochester has in this moment really is that Josephine is coming. Yes. So yep. um and by the way, before we re, we uh dive away from it, do you know who the costume designer was on this film, Brandon? Um, I don't know who the legendary Edith Head. Huh. Who did the costumes for my films beginning in 1954 with Rear Window? And fun fact, uh, this is probably bullshit, but I'm a ghost, so I don't give a shit. I I saw Buck Benny rides again and said, "Say those costumes are fucking delightful. I want that lady to be costuming Jimmy Stewart sitting in a wheelchair or the dead body in the trouble with Harry. I get me Edith Head eventually, please." <laughs> anyway, though. Edith Head, the Edith Head, though very popular pop culture figure today, technically because of the Edna character in the Incredibles series, mm-hmm. uh, the the one who makes the superhero suits, darling, um, <laughs> darling, and uh, yeah, exactly, and uh, uh, so the the Cameron sisters come with Tracy and Phil. Jack lays into his tough guy persona. He gives the 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 uh gives the ranch hands money to get into fights with him so that he can look tough which yep. you know <laughs> some wonderful good old toxic masculinity afoot there um but it almost feels like Jack's commenting on toxic masculinity there um like well, yeah, it, it's he not is. A, it's it's not, it's not like a perfect argument but it is like an interesting like you know like in order to be tough the way people perceive good men to be i've got to get into a fight with somebody well i can't get into an actual fight i'll just give them some money and fake it because i'm not into this he-man nonsense uh and through jack's reluctance they all agree to go out on a horse ride and jack is obviously clumsy on a horse uh can't really uh uh get you're being uh, kind yeah there's a there and then but the way that it uh devolves is that Kay Lineker's horse goes uh, awry and Jack's horse uh Jack Jack tries to to put himself to safety but the horse starts chasing after Kay Lineker's horse and through a series of comic <laughs> mishaps Jack ends up saving Kay Lineker from certain danger on the horse now there was an interview that Kay Lineker did later in life where she related how the film crew had to put Jack Benny up and place him on his horse as if as he didn't know how to mount or ride horses. Um, <laughs> Kay and Jack also filmed that runaway scene while they're trotting their horses a few feet, and then their doubles would take over. Um, I I would want to point out too that the um, the filming of some of these exteriors, um, uh, amongst them were the Paramount Ranch in Agora and Palm Springs in Victorville, <laughs> but there was partial filming. Uh, in this in Placerita County. Um, And I'm not sure where this particular scene was shot, but this might have been one of the places. The other ones might have been Palm Springs itself or Victorville. But um, the so the doubles would take over. When the director shouted for action, Andy Andy Devine's horse bit Kay's horse and caused it to run away. Oh, man. In In the ensuing chaos, Jack's horse also took off, and since Jack couldn't ride a horse... He had a hard time with it and had to take the next two days off from filming. So Jack is looking at his film career at this point. And despite the fact that he enjoys Mark Sandridge's company is just like, why can't I just be an actor with 
emotions and dimensions. Yeah. Why do senses, I have to have a horse passions? kick the shit out of me? <laughs> Why, I don't do... You know, he, he's got to be going to Mark Sanders going like, you do know that I'm not a slapstick comic, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Because it's true. Jack Jack is put into so many slapstick situations in his film career, it's ridiculous. Like, I, it's it's frustrating to think of how many times he's put in this position going like, Jesus, like, you deserve so much better here. He's not um, a member of the Three Stooges? <laughs> no, he's not. He's not even Charlie Chaplin. He's a different type of comic. He yeah. he requires human conversations and human moments, mm-hmm. uh, as expressed in the To Be or Not To Be episode. Um, but he saves the day, and it impresses Joan a little bit, and they retire for an evening of singing cowboy songs uh, at Jack's ranch, Jack's Andy's ranch, Jack's, Jack's ranch, Jack's, quote, Jack, quote unquote, Jack's quote unquote. ranch. Yeah, um, and we get uh, Dennis Day singing "My Kind of Country," uh, which is actually a very nice song, and you can hear Dennis sing. He clearly had those chops. And then Jack does strange interludes <laughs> in the oh, middle of the song, like "There's a bird singing out on the farm tonight." <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm gonna play the song for people so that people oh, yeah. can hear it. Jack's yeah, he, interludes too. He just couldn't help himself. No. Is my kind of people where that sundown smiles bright and red? Old time arrives, strike old when these eyes behold my kind of country ahead. Travel home, travel home, maybe far. Yes, folks, this is my kind of country, a way out west, right here, here with a deer and the antelope, and the antelope, and the deer. There's a bird singing outside the bunkhouse, singing a mighty pretty song. In these here parts where a man rides fast, shoots straight, and lives, and lives clean and long. Why, you poor city dweller, you miserable feller? Must subway trains din in your ear? Feel a call of the West, and the deer, and the antelope, and the antelope, and the deer. There's a bird singing outside the bunkhouse when the western stars peep through. Ah, you city slicker, bend over that ticker. Shame, oh shame on you. You can keep your skyscrapers, your pencils and papers, if that's what you want, you dopes. But I'll take the plains and red blood in my veins and the deer and the antelopes. There's a bird singing outside the bunkhouse, the sweetest I've ever heard. So you can have all your tinsel and glitter. As for me, just give me the bird. May I ever dream if I ever live 
and 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 in those moments you get a little bit more of Jack the Ham, which is a great persona that he had and was able to carry out in stride. Um, and then uh, the the revelation in this moment as Joan is even starting to soften her approach with um, uh, Jack. Rochester is cooking uh, dinner, uh, gets on the phone with Josephine and basically lays out Jack's plan, but Joan <laughs> overhears it. This happens sort of uh-huh. in Man About Town where Jack, where Rochester gives away a part of a scheme that Jack is involved in over the phone. But uh. this time it's just it's just unfortunate that Joan was around to hear it. <laughs> because again, Rochester doesn't he doesn't have time for this nonsense. He wants to be with his lovely Josephine. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's fresh, it's brand new. He he's missing his lady. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I've got to put up with my boss's silly, stupid shenanigans. <laughs> um, and so Joan sees this and raises an opportunity to start calling him out on it because mm-hmm. the people have, who have been rustling Andy's cattle arrive uh, to cause more chaos. Jack mistakes them for the two people, <laughs> for two more people that he's bribed into punching out for $10. Uh, and he goes like, all right, guys, here's your $10. And he punches them and they go, here's your change. <laughs> and <laughs> now these outlaws are played by Ward Bond, uh, established character actor who we've seen in The Searchers. He's also in um, as Bert the Cop in It's a Wonderful Life. And Morris Ankrum, uh, character actor who appeared in Westerns such as Ride'em Cowboy in 1942, Vera Cruz, Apache, Cattle Queen of Montana, um, he was also in the he was in the film Rocket Ship at Rocket Ship XM, um, which was a, a film that was parodied on the lovely show Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. Oh um, damn! Well, that's how so you know you made. That's how you know you made it, though. He, he's a serial. He's a serial guy, if you will. Um, not the serial podcast, like movie serials mm-hmm. you know, before yep. serials became uh, associated with terror and horror and god. <laughs> um, and so. Uh, Joan sees this play out and she goes up to these two outlaws and goes, you know what? I got an opportunity how we can uh, expose the great Buck Benny. And they, and these two like rightfully so are going, what are you talking about lady? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause she's, cause she's obviously she's under the impression that they are the fake uh, stage hands, of course. Uh, and then, she goes like, well, you know, we can embarrass him at this big gala benefit at the hotel tonight or this 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 big party at the hotel. Uh, nope. And um, uh, uh, it, like, like she she encourages them. She to hold sets up it the up. Hotel. Yeah, she yeah, sets she, it up. She sets it and, up. She takes the power she, back and she's like, you know what, Jack, you're going to get embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. And they rightfully ask the question, you're going to pay us to do a hold up? <laughs> I mean, for them, it's kind of like they hit the jackpot. Uh, yeah, no, dude, that's what I was saying. I was like, their minds are fucking blown. They're just like, wait, we're going to get paid money to steal money. Yeah, like we were going to so whip this guy's ass anyway. <laughs> yeah, we were going to beat him down. Now we're going to get paid for it? All right, cool. Yeah, it's like it's just like, can why? This, this is like, you know, like you, you can't see it, but inside their heads, they hear the song uh, Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. <laughs> <laughs> so you know like that that's it's crazy and then we get back to the hotel for the climax of our film and we get the mariel abbott dancers uh 
The Mario Abbott dancers, as I have pointed out in the Man About Town episode, uh, are are talented dancers that are unfortunately tasked with the most offensive garb in retrospect. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because man, in Man About Town, they do a dance of the seventh veils in kind of like Arabian uh, Arabian garment uh, that looks that that goes into the harem territory. Here they are dressed as Native Americans, and it is uncomfortable because. Not only that, but the Cameron sisters are singing again. And what are they singing? But uh, uh, the drumbeat of my heart, I believe, is the song. I want to clarify the song here because it is offensive yeah. shit. It is offensive oh, it's, shit. It's I wanna... so bad. Yeah. And uh, this song I will not be singing. I, I will not be playing, but it's Drums in the Night. The song is Drums in the Night. And uh, it is... Uh, What's sad about this is that the 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 maneuvers and the techniques in the dance are amazing because it's an adagio act, but it is just so front loaded with imagery. And what's more, unfortunately, in this film, as with the last film, there's uh, an issue ridden um, dance sequence with Eddie Rochester Anderson. Yeah. it it plays more into the love story between him and Josephine because he's dancing for Jos for Josephine, but he's in an Indian garb. He's in a Native American garb. Um, Rochester's in an, a Native American garb, and he is he's doing his wonderful shuffles and sidesteps. But it's the costume. It's the costume that does it. He, it's unfortunate. Uh, um, but the concluding part of this, the emotional crux of the film, which is this love story. Uh, uh, Joan basically goes like, look, Jack, I was going to pull this dirty trick on you, but I can't do it. And I, and I guess it's because I kind of care about you. And Jack gives this out of left field line, given his pursuit of Joan in the movie, um, because it's a great line, but it feels like it almost feels like it's not earned. He go, he says the line, um, uh, a fellow does a fellow in love does some crazy things he wouldn't do in his right mind, um, which is a nice line, but yeah, but it, but it, it but it, it but it's front loaded, you know, like it, it, this is like where some of these like older films really fall apart too, right? Where it's like the logic of like why she would come around to even thinking, oh well, I kind of like you. It's like why, like I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. like oh he put forth all this. A quote unquote effort to like impress me or whatever so maybe he cares but like even still it's like i'm not i'm not buying it i'm not buying it's it not, <laughs> it's not it's it's not the same as eddie and Teresa, where you believe yeah it's not and what's more you know the line itself i like the line even though it doesn't make sense for jack's character there is a there is, it's one of those bright moments that you see in all Jack Benny movies where he shows his potential as an actor. Mm-hmm. And his solemnness in that moment is genuine. Like, there's a genuine reaction off of him. It just sucks because the story hasn't... Uh, uh, hasn't gotten there yet. Yeah, it hasn't... Re- it, it doesn't deserve that reward it gives. Yeah, yeah it doesn't. Um, yeah. And so uh, he's been let in on the gag. The, the, the hold-up men come... Uh, they, um, Joan tries to call it off. They tie her up and gag her. Um, and Jack goes into the room after Andy saying that they're here and he goes in there to, to basically 
go through the routine that he that Joan has set up, but in actuality, the holdup men are now rogue. <laughs> oh and, yeah, and the uh, Andy and Dennis are under the impression that uh, uh, Jack is still doing uh, this in a fake sense, and so uh, they are kind of like describing the the fight for people who can't see it, like like box like boxing yeah. announcers. Yep, and, play by play. Uh, and when Jack realizes that these are actual bullets that they're shooting at him and not fake, I oh, do like man. the delayed reaction. It's not perfect, but I do like it. <laughs> like, he he like, falls. Oh, yeah, I mean, he gets scared real quick. Yeah, and uh, when he goes to fight them, by the way, and he goes like, "I'll take care of those vomits." He trips on the carpet before going in there, and Phil goes, "Buck Benny rides again," which yep. I'm like, "Ah, they said the title of the movie." Uh, <laughs> w- without referencing the radio show, they said the title of the movie, uh, and uh, and as they're desc- and as Andy and Dennis are describing this fight too, um, but uh, Andy refers to one moment of the fight where it sounds like the rat-a-tat of a machine gun. <laughs> Andy calls it uh, Buck's famous machine gun punch. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yes. Classic Buck Benny and his machine gun punch. Yeah. <laughs> That's really how he uh, sk- inst- puts fear into the enemy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those jokes that works on the level of being a Jack Benny fan, of like trying to build up Jack's character. But also the term machine gun punch, I just giggled at going like, I want that to be a exploitation movie, machine gun punch. Oh. Like a, a fighter has been betrayed by by his manager or whatever, and he seeks revenge with his machine gun punch. <laughs> like, you ever see uh, a machine gun preacher with Gerard Butler? No, and I don't think I need to, Brandon. No, you can skip it. Good. I'm going to. <laughs> Um, also when he pulls out the guns to try to stick them up and he's shaking his hands, I did note that Jack is a little too on the nose with his shaking hands. Um, so, but it's not his fault. Again, Jack is not really supposed to be doing these kind of physical shticks, but he engages in the fight. Eventually the fight leads him into pushing the two outlaw men into a hidden room where inside that room. Oh man is a certain bear. But first also we should say that he drives into the room. He drives them into the room, goes behind the door. Everybody else gets through the door, saves Joan, realizes it's actual. And they go, where's Buck? And Jack comes out of the, uh, the room, dusting his hands off and going like, well, your holder men are in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I got the job done. Don't worry about and it. Ro- and he, and Rochester goes in there to take a look and he sees that the two holdup men are climbing up, a series of pipes for their dear life as Carmichael the bear begins to maul and eat at them. Yep. (laughs) This movie has a bear eating people in it. (laughs) They bookended it. And I love it. Bookended it. Carmichael, the fucking badass motherfucking polar bear (laughs) is going to eat these fucking bandits. Brandon, this movie has fucking everything, including man eating bears. Yeah. Nobody Uh, seems to care that the bear has a taste for humans now. And and now it just wants to do that. Let's, let's look at it from this way, from a point of view of another popular film of the era. So like, I love the wizard of Oz, but Burt Lahr doesn't eat anybody in it. The lion doesn't eat anybody. Carmichael, the bear is about, is about ready to snack on two bandits right here. Well, Wizard of Oz, I mean, the goddamn house fell on a witch. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yes, but does it have Burt Lahr eating people? <laughs> no, it. I guess it doesn't, but... No, that's my point. 
Ugh. man-eating bear. I mean, um, we could we could deep fake it now. <laughs> Put that into the movie. I just want a little courage and a little snack. <laughs> It'd be great. He's, he starts eat, he starts eating the witch. <laughs> they go into the secret room. Then like he comes up, put him up, put him up, put him up, <laughs> put him up, put him up. It's dinner time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Rochester sees it and he and he's just marveling at the audacity of this whole ridiculous situation. Yep. He's just like, you know what? I'm not going to complain. I've got a new lady friend. The whole world is right. And then Jack uh, Fred Allen's press agent Charlie goes in. He doesn't believe the harrowing saga of Jack and goes, do you mind if I go in there and take a look? And he goes, by all means, sir. And Charlie <laughs> Graham goes in there and J- and Rochester says the final line of the film, goodbye, Mr. Chips. So it's yeah. established that Charlie Graham's going to get eaten. <laughs> and we also, um, we really know what happened to the gas man. Yes, now we know what happened to the gas man. Um, but that's the end of Buck Benny Rides Again. Uh, the Paramount picture from 1940. Brandon, we we talked a good chunk about this movie. Like, I, I what, what can you tell the audience? Like, what really like? What? Why do you enjoy it, and why would you go back to it? Well, I mean, I enjoyed it because I actually like movies where every character is flawed, um, and th- you could tell in this movie everybody's flawed at some point. Um, right. But, you know, I actually, for all the aspects of the movie that did not age well, I think once you factor in the context of the time, I give Jack a lot of credit for maybe not um, giving in to what peers of the studio wanted in terms of maybe limiting uh, Rochester's screen time or giving him a role that was really just kind of like a fluff piece as opposed to giving him something that's an actual real role. Um, and, you know, again, also it's it's 1940, right? So we can't forget that. Like they were still sort of figuring out how to tell these stories, how to tell these, like this rom-com movie, like effectively. They were still trying to figure out how to tell these. Essentially, it's kind of like a road trip movie where they're like, yeah. you know, in they're sort of trying to figure all this out in real time. So, I mean, I think there's some really great lessons in terms of pacing and character development that can be taken from this movie that, you know, is everything perfect? Absolutely not. But was there a lot of great things in this movie that didn't get the proper recognition that maybe it deserved? I think that's definitely the case as well. Yeah, and the legacy of this film to me, in addition to those comedic factors, because I do think it is a very tightly constructed, well put together comedy that plays into the faults and frailties that the Jack character possesses and gives us a character that we root for, even though he's technically terrible, <laughs> and uh, and also breaks breaks some ground on the innovation of representing african-americans on screen regardless of how imperfect it is there is progress that you can see there um and we're getting to the final uh reception of this film from two different fronts but first i did want to point out i I feel bad that we didn't mention this but it's established that rochester is getting ready to propose to josephine in this movie um yeah and that kind of goes back to what i was talking to about if things move very fast in these movies and 
like if this was this if they made this movie today like a there'd be a lot of other things that it wouldn't do the same but like in terms of like their story would not move as fast yeah no yeah you would slow down and actually have a story with rochester and josephine and i feel bad that i i overlooked it when we did the plot synopsis but it is like one of those things of like the main draw of the plot has so much going in it that it oh, Rochester's and Teresa Harris's scenes get overwhelmed in them. Um, but we should talk about the reception of this film in a couple different fronts. First of all, remember when I said that they held two premieres? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to finish this story from uh, Kathy's book. Uh, a little long, but bear with me here. Uh, and thanks to da- Kathy Fuller Seeley for writing this book. So, uh, twi- twin premieres were mounted of Buck Benny Rides Again, one at the flagship Paramount Theater in Manhattan, which broke all box office records for the first day show. And on the night before, a huge celebration at Lowe's Victoria Theater in Harlem, a 2,400-seat picture palace located on 125th Street adjacent to the Apollo Theater. The Harlem event, uh, the Harlem events received live radio coverage and extensive stories in the black and white press. Hollywood goes Harlem, uh, goes to Harlem is the slogan adopted by Paramount for the first world premiere of a motion picture ever held in Harlem. The black, the black press gleefully reported the Buck Benny rides again. Premiere week in New York city was the highest point of Eddie Anderson's star career. It started with a ceremonial parade held in Harlem, the Thursday before when Anderson arrived at the 125th street station to be pre- greeted by area African-American dignitaries, more than 3000 people jammed the sidewalks to see the group parade up the several blocks to the famous Teresa hotel with Anderson riding a large black stallion on Sunday evening, the Benny cast performed their radio show from the stage of the Ritz theater uh, on Tuesday night. A huge parade brought Anderson, Benny Sandrich, Benny cast members, Fred Allen, and New York entertainment celebrities to Lowe's Victoria Theater. Coverage was broadcast on radio station WHN. Crowds estimated at 150,000 filled the streets, 20,000 people gathering outside the Lowe's Victoria to see the celebrities arrive. 300 city police on horseback kept pushing into the crowds, aggressively maintaining order. A new Amsterdam news reporter maintained it was a bigger public event than Marcus Garvey's parades or even the welcome home reception for Jesse Owens returning triumphantly from the Olympics in Berlin. Huh. In inside the theater, bro, local inside the theater with the local broadcast continuing, Willie Bryant acted as master of ceremonies on the stage. Bill Robinson introduced dignitaries in the audience. <laughs> Jack, Benny, and Rochester performed a skit on stage. Uh, and then Fred Allen spoke. The principals stayed on to open the second screening. Then everybody repaired to the Savoy Ballroom, where a huge testimonial reception was held to honor Anderson. Everyone in Harlem society was there, including Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Ethel Waters, Jules Bledsoe, Bledsoe, city dignitaries and prominent African-Americans in city and state governments, the police and fire services, and the military. Reviews of Anderson's performance in Buck Benny Rides Again were were laudatory, although some articles in the mainstream white press twisted things around to give the most credit for Rochester's role to Benny. Uh, 
and a few betrayed deeply uh, held racial attitudes. The New York Showman's Trade Review reported that Rochester smashes through to the spotlight on several counts. For one, he sings My My, especially written for him, in a voice as charming and soothing as a cement mixer. His, he displays an amazingly delicate talent as a dancer, and he tops the Benny gags with something funnier at every shot made by the master. It is with a spirit of bland generosity that Benny steps back and lets Rochester have the spot. For while he sacrifices himself as an actor, he proves himself to be a top showman. So there's some criticism on that front with there. But the New York Herald Tribune critic Howard Barnes wrote uh, eloquently about Anderson and Man About Town was a little bit less kind. And we'll talk about that in a second in regards to Hmm. uh, the reception. But. There is a. I mean, overall, man, that was a that's a pretty glowing uh, article. Yeah, like that. So this is the thing. The big impact. So this is a, something to take away from this is that Jack, Jack, with enough power at that point, could have like balked at the idea of Eddie Rochester Anderson being given the spotlight at one of the premieres of this movie, and not only does he not do that. He supports the shit out of it. Does work with Rochester on stage. Like he fully backs up his coworker and friend here. Um, the celebration at Harlem uh, is legendary. It's one of the most important parts of this film's production history and release is this story. And the fact that Eddie Rochester Anderson had such a celebration in his honor at the at the at the financial backing of a studio like Paramount is quite amazing. It doesn't make up for the indis- the the racial disparities of this era by any stretch. It does nothing to fix any wounds that were established uh, in this era. But it is interesting to note that a studio like Paramount knew that this would be an opportune moment, whereas something like The Press for Gone with the Wind was less than willing to back up its African-American actors because of the pressure from the South. Well, yeah, man. I mean, look at, you know, use Paramount, right? I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Mm-hmm. And luckily enough for Rochester, like maybe, you know, when that clock was correct for Paramount, he benefited from it, luckily. Yeah. And... um So there's uh, receptions in regards to Anderson's performance that I wanted to point to from Kathy's book because she points out that is the impact of Anderson and Benny's unusual position as interracial co-stars in Hollywood contributed to fascinating little moments of possibility in the black community's popular imagination. Um, A doctor named Dr. Benjamin Mays was uh, was uh, named the president of Morehouse College, an African-American college. uh, and a undergraduate component of Atlanta University, the college faced dire financial challenges, and Mays addressed these with careful fiscal budgeting to the point where some of the Morehouse students were re- would be affectionately referring to him as Buck Benny <laughs> to, to to fall in line with the cheapskate <laughs> attitude. Um, now, uh, in the Chicago Defender, a letter to the editor wrote here, "Dear editor." And the Chicago Defender, by the way, was a black newspaper of the era. Uh, I take this means of congratulating Eddie Rochester Anderson for his splendid work in Buck Benny Rides Again. There has been much favorable comment from the white people of this town. They say it was really Rochester's picture, and they seem to enjoy it much more than some other pictures. 
I know it was much better than some I have seen. I have seen similar to this one. Two of the pictures I may name were Imitation of Life and Gone with the Wind. Both of these were outstanding pictures, but somehow Buck Benny Rides Again seems to bring about the goodwill between the white and colored races, which has been and is being fought for so vigorously by a people who are approaching the shouldering of arms for a flag and country they have not the privilege of serving sincerely. I feel we should not overlook any opportunity to encourage our people. I sincerely hope all colored people who have not seen this picture will do so at their first opportunity. It's coming from S. Springfield in 503 Fifth Street, Coffeeville, Kansas. Um, so the reception to Jack, or to uh, so the reception to Rochester is a loaded discussion because not everybody in the black press. Uh, appreciated Rochester's performance. There was even criticisms within mainstream white papers. But there's a there's a oh, for yeah. for every for every negative reception to the persona, there was one. There was never denying his popularity and his impact. But two, there was also a lot of people who did see this as a step forward and uh, and uh, a moment of rec- recognizing that there's cooperation forming. Um, I'd argue that there's a lot of there's a lot there's even the 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 ground that this movie breaks is 10 times more impactful than man about town recent re, realistically thanks to the fact that uh you have those moments between Eddie and Teresa um well yeah man and you know of course the articles are going to be polarizing right like this is progress is very seldomly not polarizing it's it's going to like rock the boat. Some people on each side are not going to like it. They're not going to like the way it was handled, the way, the way it was done. Because, you know, there's, you only get one shot at doing this, right? So they made the movie that they had to make or, you know, wanted to make or were forced into doing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And while it advanced certain things, it wasn't perfect, not even close. But it was, was it a step in the right direction? I think so. Yeah, I do too. And that's why I'm not... Um... You know, I, I mean, it, this, this, the, these episodes are not used as opportunities to make excuses for the era, but they are to point out the intriguing little niches in areas where progress was made, even if it's hard to recognize. It doesn't excuse the treatment of these African-American actors at the time um, or the stereotypes that they were relegated to for the most part, where whether it was Step and Fetch it, Mantan Moreland, or even Teresa Harris herself having to play maids all the time. Um, oh, man, and Ro- that still it, it yeah, pisses me off. It does, it does to me too. And so, but I want to point, I would rather not shy away from shining a spotlight on these performers because they were talented. They deserve to have their stories told for positive or for negative to understand that the history of Hollywood is not just Clark Gable, Humphrey Bogart, Jimmy Stewart, Alfred Hitchcock, like predominantly white, white males, or it's not, and it's not even just Joan Bennett, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Ingrid Bergman, Mm -hmm. not just a bunch of white women. There are people in this era, both African-American, Asian, Native American, Arabic, that were in this industry that deserve their stories to be told. 
Adam Roach, The Secret History of Hollywood, has already taken that step by doing a full 45-minute episode of his new Queens of Cinema series on Anna Mae Wong, a very, very trailblazing actress that I want to talk about in some form or fashion on this show. Um, but, Brandon, we'll talk about the way this film also influences filmmaking today because you and I are fully aware of the world we live in with IP. So there was a big promotional push for this film. And part of the issue that arose from this was the film industry uh, uh, engaged in a debate. Um, uh, basically, the press at this time started digging into the merits of adapting radio f shows to film. <laughs> so there are reviews. Uh, well, first of all, let's just say that. Uh, there was a public opinion pollster, George Gallup, that concluded in a 1940 survey that the American moviegoers and moviegoing habits um, suggested that Buck Benny Rides Again was the most effectively pre-sold picture of the year due to the direct result of steady plugging on Jack Benny, Bob Hope, and Bing Crosby radio shows. And Box Office Digest reported that Buck Benny Rides Again was a major hit, doing impressive 34 34% better than average business in movie theaters in cities across the nation. So this movie was a hit. Critic reception uh, was, was, was maligned in many respects because the, the merit of adapting radio to film uh, was questioned by these major critics of the era. First, let's start... Oh, of course, it was new, right? Yeah. Let me, let me start with... Um, uh, the the New York Mirror, uh, and these are all coming from Kathy's book where she all references these, is radio audiences and motion picture audiences are in theory identical. Each supposedly made up of the great bulk of Americans who watch, Nich watch the Nichols, and Nichols closely and who seek escape and low-priced entertainment in these two media for the masses. The chief trouble with this theory is that it has not seemed to work out so well in practice. Cinematic moguls are still debating whether broadcasting by their stars as part of radio's standard soap and breakfast food operas helps or hurts their film's box office standings. Personalities created or, or largely built up by radio have been borrowed in many cases by the movie makers with uncertain results. And he argues that Buck Benny Rides Again is the first which completely transforms the film to film the radio character which Benny had made for himself. He predicted that it would be the rare Hollywood movie to truly please radio fans. And given the box office, it did. Now, Howard Barnes from the Herald Tribune, who was very positive about, the, about Jack's um, uh, film Man About Town, was very, very uh, uh, harsh on this film because of the intermediary change, because the thing that this film does that uh, Buck Benny Rides Again does, doesn't do, or sorry, the, the thing that Man About Town does that Buck Benny Rides Again doesn't do is put Jack in a fake role. Like he plays a different character named Bob yeah. In this film, mm -hmm. he is playing Jack Benny. Um, so this is from Howard Barnes of the, uh, of, of the, uh, of the New York Herald. He deplored the sorry state of screen fare, wow. which merely emphasizes the poor judgment which the screen is now displaying in forgetting fundamentals and playing to what used to be called the gallery. 
basically, it points to the fact that there was ill reception to the idea of not making films that were written specifically for the for the screen, but trying to lift from other properties. Now, Brandon, we've talked about how um, uh, IP is a major factor within the business today, where the, most of the box office successes come out of this. Well, I mean, I'm just glad that we haven't lived, you know, to a time where almost everything you see is just a rehash of something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Like, it's, I mean, and now we, we're getting reboots, essentially reboots of reboots, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, how many times did they make them like I Am Legend? What was it like the Omega Man? And then there was like the other version and then like the I Am Legend with uh, Will Smith. Um, how many times have we seen A Star Is Born? Three times? Right. And I got it. I, even though they're great, the one with Lady Gaga and um, Bradley Cooper, great movie. Mm-hmm. But it's like the third time we've seen it. Um, and yeah, we're getting to the point where everything's just getting remade, rebooted, like... I yeah, I don't know, man. It's some of the stuff is great. Like some of the stuff like can benefit from being updated and having a fresh set of eyes on it, and like a different filmmaker with a different like voice and a different uh, tone and message. Like sometimes it really does benefit from that. Then sometimes you can just see it from the get go. It's just a cash grab. Yeah. Um. So I want to read from further in Barnes's article because I think that this is important. For the new Paramount offering is nothing more than a random collection of banter and blackout sketches strung together on a radio program setup. The form may be all right for an airwaves production, but it leaves a great deal to be desired on the screen. There is shaky skeletons of satire running through Buck Benny Rides again with its occasional burlesque of the horse opera. A horseback chase of the Lone Ranger variety is definitely funny, and Mr. Benny's scraps with... Scraps with uh, scraps with a pair of desperados are amusing in a slapstick manner, paired with indis- paired indiscriminately with the lampoons throughout, are ornate production numbers from a nightclub hoopla to a barbecue, which may be showy but certainly don't add to the distinction of the film. Even with its effective, fast-paced staging, Buck Benny Rides Again is cinema counterfeit and sets what I would consider a dangerous precedent for on-screen production. And who, now, who wrote that? Uh, Howard Barnes uh, from the New York Herald. Um, and, um, and what what else is he known for? <laughs> writing for the New York New York, New York Herald. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now he's not wrong though about like I, I find it funny that he finds Jack slapstick stuff. Um, uh, fun because I'm just like to me those are the weak parts of the movie. Um, his his character interactions, Jack's performance as a character is what's wonderful about this movie. Um, that and Eddie Rochester Anderson, um, B. R. Chrysler, um, wrote 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 for the New York Times. It is still more of a broadcast than a motion picture. There are some worthy people who are wedded to their radio, who like their entertainment handed to them in great globs of dialogue interspersed with swelling crescendos of background music. And on the other hand, there are equally reputable persons who consider, fairly or not, that the screen is wasted on that type of picture. Don't blame us if Jack Benny in a cowboy suit hardly seems worth the trip. Uh, And then this is from Variety. Uh, the reviewer wrote, write, 
writes uh, in regards to uh, radio-themed movies. The motion picture industry has ceased to abuse radio and is using it as a background for a score of films and more to come. Practically every major studio is producing or preparing features, dealing wholly or in part with broadcasting. Some of them are built entirely around the microphone, and there is no answering kickback from the exhibitors who used to protest against the inroads of the ether programs and the film business. Paramount leads the studios in its use of radio backgrounds for the screen, which six features of that nature completed uh, in production or in preparation. Throughout the celluloid industry, the broadcasting background is a growing rival of the canyons and prairies. Um, this is, there is a genuine fear in the critics' minds about the state of cinema in, in this respect. Amongst the other radio shows that would end up being adapted for the screen would include things like Fibber McGee and Molly, The Great Gilder's Sleeve. Um, even elements of Bob Hope pop up in some of the films. Um, they they tried again with Fred Allen with both Love Thy Neighbor and then eventually it's in the bag. Uh, Burns and Allen had success with their films of the past, but they had stopped making films at this point. Um, so there is a push uh, and Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy also being put into films that are kind of radio themed within the sphere of Fibber McGee and Molly uh, end up happening. So there's a concerted effort to start mining radio for the potential material. And it used to be a situation where radio was outperforming film during the depression where radios sold because it was free entertainment in the long run. Whereas films you're paying a box office price per per ticket um and film films for a while would not allow their stars to appear on radio as a result jack was creative enough along with some other creative radio personalities of the era to mingle the two to provide a platform for promotion for a film and it would allow him to get stars occasionally uh, or to parody other popular films by laying into positive promotion for these films. So like anytime you hear him parody a film on his show, he speaks about the film with dignity before they make fun of it in the parody. Um, and this, co this coincides also with because of how many times they mention LA locations on his show, it actually promoted tourism in California. Um, so there, there's an element of, a snob, I want to call it a snobbery-ish from the film critics of the merit of films like these. And the thing is, is that Buck Many Rides Again and even Love Thy Neighbor to an extent are exceptions to the rule because the majority of these radio-themed films are not good. They are not good. Some of them stand out. I like the Armis Brooks film from the 50s. It's not perfect, but it's adorable. Um, but the but the Fibber McGee, the Molly ones, the Gildersleeve ones, they don't really work out. They're more serialized and kind of of their time. Um, but so we see this argument permeating today, Brandon, because how many arguments do we hear about, uh, in the regards to the merits of superhero movies versus, uh, non IP material or the arguments of streaming versus theatrical? These arguments have been here since day one. They're not going away. No. <laughs> it's, it's so funny though, right? Cause you know, like when... Like what what people consider art is subjective. Um, like whenever a critic says something, I'm like, well, that's also subjective. Like, 
whenever like someone is talking about like all right there's there's an issue with let's say we're rebooting or rehashing or we're redoing something and like most of the the loudest people are the ones not actually making films yeah so i'm like really like i mean to be honest like to dick with you you're not even in the game like it's like some it's like a fan of a football team being like i can't believe they ran that play you're not on the field (laughs) you're not even you're not even in the game i ended yeah, and there's a, and there's a sense of what I do on this show and what I also do on Real Nerds that I have no real right to criticize at any tor- turn, but uh, I try to. That's why I try to be even handed and not bash a movie entirely unless it just really gets to me. But because uh, I do think that you can't, you know, Scorsese's been putting his foot in his mouth a lot lately, and I think that it's unfair to relegate a genre like a superhero movie to not being as important to the discussion as anything that's not related to superheroes. I understand that they are overwhelming the market and it's frustrating because I would rather see other films succeed, but it's what the audience wants. That's the, the audience dictates what films we see for. Yeah. That's how it goes. Radio films of this era, they did do, they did do well on occasion. So they're not like there, there is no, uh, there is no reason why they were there's it's they they weren't made for no reason they were made to make money, that's what they were there to do. Well, these these are companies like these aren't like nonprofits like their goal is to make yeah. money. And I I want to bring up this Gallup poll that came up, um, uh in in regards to spending more time listening to the radio than attending a movie show, while. 11 million cinema addicts, 11 million 500,000 cinema addicts sit in their favorite cinema mansions on an average of sun, on an average Sunday. 34 million fans listen to Jack Benny on the air. On the average Monday, 5 million go to the movies. 26 million stay home to re, to listen to the Damn. Lux Radio Theater program. Um, radio was competition that needed to be co-opted. If Hollywood was going to hang on to any audience in these unsettled perilous times, according to (laughs) Kathy's book. And this is also the other thing that we'll bring up within Kathy's book. So we talked about Jack Benny over the course of many episodes, not being, um, able to get his foot in the door in film or find a niche for himself. Really? Jack Benny became one of Paramount's top three male movie stars at the box office in 1939 and 1940, and among the top 12 stars industry-wide throughout 1942. If the the public—this is from Kathy's book again—if the public would only come out to theaters to see highly promoted but mediocre films starring radio performers, then Paramount would produce them. Nevertheless, using radio celebrities who broadcast only in the United States— made these films questionable for overseas theaters who they could still reach. The Times of London would consider Sandrich's subsequent Benny effort, Love Thy Neighbor, a poor and forgettable film, noting London audiences have never heard of Fred Allen, and the frequent allusions to the Benny Allen feud would doubtless remain a sealed book to Britishers. And I want to double down on this because Kathy alluded to this as well. Jack was not only Jack, Jack when he made Charlie's Aunt a, a year later is not only uh, the, the film is not only in the top 10 grossing films of the year 1941, but he is voted among the top male stars of that year. Huh. 
It's amazing that the studio <laughs> never jumped on that popularity. They never did. And I didn't see it. And I don't know how much of that also had to do with Jack's radio schedule as well. But it also lends to the question of how is a studio not looking for good properties for him? They get close a bunch. Like George Washington, who knows? George Washington slept here does work for him, but you know, like, well, he didn't have to do anything. Like he was already super successful. He was probably only doing the things that he wanted to do his way. He, he, it comes down to, he always wanted to be a movie star, but I think radio did kind of, kind of overtake that obsession. And Laura Leibowitz pointed out, you had to let Jack be Jack. And that's where yeah. the, where, where the, the, the counterbalance of this comes is not, it's not just the studios part. Jack still actively looked for properties after the horn blows at midnight, um, as was noted, but, it does seem that there's a combination of factors where disinterest eventually evolves from Jack's end. And also the studio wasn't giving him much to work off of to begin with. The only times he is given material he likes come in these later years of his film career with Charlie's aunt, even George Washington slept here and obviously to be or not to be. Um, So anyway, the legacy of this film, I do think beyond Eddie Rochester Anderson's celebration in Harlem, I think it's now extended primarily to Benny fans because here's the here's the sad coda on Buck Benny Rides Again along with the Mark Sandridge trilogy at large. This movie's not widely available. Now, unlike No, it's not. Unlike Man About Town, where you have to kind of share your copies with people, you can find Buck Benny Rides Again on the Internet Archive. It has been there for years and has never gone away. Um, arguably, I would assume Universal has rights to this that they have never exercised or given a shit about. Uh, so that's terrible. Which I'm 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 pro Universal and they're uh, curating their legacy for the most part, but they're Jack Benny films that they have the rights to. They don't bother to do anything with. Um, but regardless, the film has an interesting legacy in regards to Jack's film career and pointing to the fact that a radio star of this era uh, was popular enough to have his persona transplanted in this way, regardless of how negative it is for Jack's film career at large, it is very, very encouraging, to say the least, to watch it unfold. So, Brandon, before we wrap this up, do you have any final thoughts about Buck Benny Rides Again and where you see its influence today? Well, I mean, I think we already, we, I think we talked about that. Um, already in terms of like what you can take from it um, sort of like you know you can see like the the seeds of like the road trip comedy sort of being planted there a little bit you know and it's sort of a genre like blending too because like you know there's action in there there's the romantic aspects there's the straight comedy aspects um, so like that's some of the real strengths to take from it um, and also about like trying to make each character sort of have a their own shining moment in the script because I, I do in a, in a script or in a movie because I do think that each character in this movie sort of gets a little moment to shine it might not be a lot and it might not be something that like is executed perfectly because there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's completely polarizing and unacceptable today yeah but I do think that that's like some of the stuff to be taken from it and Really, it's just a shame that it's not more widely available or known. I had no idea this movie even existed until we started talking about Jack Benny. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that if people 
were unsure of how to receive Jack's radio and uh, television material and how it pertains to Eddie Rochester Anderson, this is a film that um, helps exemplify the positivity in that relationship. I also think in terms of Jack's radio persona, if you are a fan of Jack Benny's radio shows and you haven't seen this film, you'll be in for a treat. As long as you're oh, yeah, you love it. When you're as long as you're responsible enough to digest the material of its time um in in a responsible manner, I think you will have a blast Absolutely. with the movie. Um and it has everything it has a lot of things that Benny fans want, apart from a lot of the innovations that would develop in the mid forties to early fifties. So uh thank you, Brandon, for coming down um or for Skyping with me to talk about <laughs> Jack Jack's movie. Uh, this is a treat. I'm glad that you liked the film and I'm glad your first exposure to Jack was a positive. Oh, dude, no, I, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, I always like when, you know, when our episodes are twice as long as the films that we're actually, <laughs> it's twice as long oh, as yeah. the film. Well, this is, this, this, isn't, this is in keeping with the Mark Sandrich trilogy. There are going to be three hour episodes each. Um, and I think I want to have you back on to talk about Love Thy Neighbor with Laura Leibowitz, to have a full combo oh, episode, get the two people who were responsible for covering this, or maybe even have you uh, with some other, like we'll, we'll figure out a way to keep your Jack film education going. Um, <laughs> really, really quickly, let people know where they can find out about uh, when she showed up, your wonderful movie, your rom-com. Uh, it's something, it's a little bit of a rom-com. Um, well, ro- yeah, it's, it's, it's yes, sort yeah. of in that vein. Uh, on Amazon Prime, go on Amazon uh, Prime Video, stream it. When she showed up, you got a bunch of really great actors in the movie that really make up for my uh, my my decent writing, but they really make it much better. Um, <laughs> you can see uh, you know Zach's work because Zach came out for one day and helped us out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh zach's work the one shot of yeah, glory. perfect perfect shot wouldn't have been possible without zach um but uh yeah i know it's like ah oh, amazon big evil monster but like currently that's the best spot to check out my movie so for like 90 minutes don't hate them so much and just stream my movie and then you can hate <laughs> them again <laughs> sweet Awesome. Well, thank you again, Brandon. This is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find more episodes of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review on our podcast feed. You can find out more about us in the tags um, at the end of this episode. On the next episode, uh, I, I am there's a couple of things in the works, so um, these might be floating up in the air because this will be the last big pre-recorded thing that I do for a bit. But um, I am currently engaged in conversation to talk about Olivia de Havilland with Return from the Shamley. She'll be making her debut on the Ballyhoo, but she was a fixture of the Shamley silhouette, Miss Olivia Carmel, to talk about Olivia de Havilland, her namesake. Uh, And also, I will be eventually having on board the Poptimistic Boys, (laughs) Anthony Cuba and Brent Ballard, uh, to come on and talk about The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. Yes, we're going to go back to Vincent land. Uh, And also, we are working with the Pop Culture Brews guys to bring them back to talk about A Slight Case of Murder, uh, which is an Edward G. Robinson Prohibition-era comedy. Uh, But until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. 
Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Fred Allen, who follows immediately after station identification.